The week before last, we aired the first of two in our camping mini-series that we're doing. And this week, we've got three world travelers for you that have been camping from their motorcycles for over 40 years collectively. Now, when you camp as much as these people have, it's no longer considered recreational camping, at least in my mind. It becomes more of a way of life. And no matter whether you are going camping for the weekend or whether you're planning an extended trip, following some of the the tips and advice and ideas that we're getting from these people will make your camping more fun and even safer. Now, if you ever hear someone talk about camping that doesn't enjoy camping, often they'll say things like, it's too much hassle or I don't get a good night's sleep. Now, those are two really valid reasons not to camp, but I don't think it's Camping, that's the issue here. I think it's not knowing how to do it in a manageable and comfortable way. Most people enjoy being in the outdoors, the freshness, the views, the scenery, the solitude. But keeping it simple, learning simple routines that make camping comfortable are key to enjoying yourself in the outdoors and also conducive to getting a good night's sleep. And that good night's sleep will power you through the following day and which is obviously important for us motorcycle riders, especially when the going gets tough. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicom. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Bergoon. Helga Pedos. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Bowman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Glenn Jarvis. Quentin Smith. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Spencer Conway has been camping out of his panniers for 14 years running. Now, we're not talking weekend jaunts, a week here, a week there. It's pretty much continuous travel and camping. And one point I think is worth noting is that you could expect Spencer to feel that this routine of camping after 14 years is getting a little old. But in fact, he loves it. Now, if it's uncomfortable or inconvenient, how could he still enjoy it after all this time? Well, He's learned to make camping organized, safe, and comfortable. So there's not hardship. It's all enjoyment. Spencer, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, thank you, Jim. It's always a pleasure to be on. And thanks for having me on this occasion again. Where are you right now? Um, I'm in London, actually. Um, I had a a couple of health issues after a motorbike crash, but I've got it all sorted now. Um, Kathy is still in uh, Mexico because she's working at the moment, but I'm heading back on the 14th. Uh, We're going to do a documentary down there. Oh, wow. So your your motorcycle accident, what what was that about? I think I probably told you. It was years ago. um, I I, I rode up 12 stairs and drove into a wall, and uh, I used my um, meat and two vegetables as a brake. If you understand what I mean. 
Oh, I see. Um, so, so yeah, so I had to have that sorted out. They just put a little tube in. Right, right. Too much information, Spencer. I didn't want to know that. I but, know, but I, I tell everybody this. So. <laughs> no secrets. No secrets no with secrets. you. <laughs> That's right. So you, you've been on a quest now for some years to, to circumnavigate every continent. Where in that plan are you now? Okay. Uh, obviously, we had the, the problem with COVID and we've been held back quite a bit. And sure. then I had my health issues, but now we're ready to rock and roll. So uh, we're probably heading up your way. I've been telling you that for years, but I'll surprise you at your front door. Wow. Okay. That, that should be quite good. So, so far, you've, you've circumnavigated Africa and South America? Yeah, and Central America and Mexico as well. So, mm. um, yeah, uh, 34 countries of Africa, uh, all 20 of Central and South America, and Mexico, which is in North America, what people don't realize. Oh, incredible. By circumnavigating, does that give you, do you think, like a, like a, better, a, a better picture of what uh, a continent is like? I think so. I mean, uh, obviously with South America, we got a bit carried away and we went to every single country. But there's, there's a couple of reasons. Circumnavigating every continent hasn't been done. I've checked the record books. I'm sure someone will phone me and say they've done it. But uh, as far as I can tell, they haven't. Uh, the second thing is a, is a bit of a personal thing. I'm a huge fan of the ocean, and I'm a huge fan of sea life. Uh, not sitting on a beach, you know, getting a tan, that kind of thing. But uh, uh, I, li- I like to dive, and I like to snorkel. So sometimes it's a nice break from, from riding. Mm, right, right. And yeah, I, I think the mistake that people think when they, when they hear your quest is that they think you're riding on every continent, but you're circumnavigating. That's the difference. Yeah, that's the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Every every country that touches the water. And then if there's something super, super exciting, we'll sort of head inland a bit. Right, right. And the whole time you're filming this, and, and, and where do you put the films out? Yeah, we're filming at the moment. Um, the next one is going to go to Travel Channel. Well, no, and I'm right. in the middle of finishing my, my third book as well. Your third book. Wow. Jeez, you are, I don't know yeah. how you find the time to do all this. What are the other two books, the name of them? Uh, the Japanese speaking curtain maker. That's the one about Africa mm-hmm. and the Zimbabwean psychiatrist's hat. That's the one about South and Central America. And the third one is called the lunatic. Is that about you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you set that one up. So, so, so on these adventures that you're doing, you're, are you camping mostly or do you do a mix of camping and hoteling it or? Uh, Jim, we are absolute camping geeks, to be honest. Uh, we camp as much as we possibly can. Uh, the, what, obviously, we're going to be talking about camping. I, we are more into sort of the proper bush camping, so a little bit more rough rather, rather than designated campsites. But I hope that my, my tips are you know, useful for, for all types of camping. But yes, on, on the Africa one, for example, we camped for 276 nights. Sorry, I did. It was solo, that one. Wow. Yes, and Kathy and I camped a lot in South America also. So have you kept track? Do you have a total night's camping? Uh, no, I don't know exactly how much it is, but I would say three quarters of the time over the 14 years we're camping. I've been, uh, my parents, obviously I was brought up in Kenya and Swaziland. My parents were very, very big into camping. So I've been, I've been camping since I was knee high to a grasshopper, really. <laughs> That's a saying I always use as well. I like that. So, so okay. So we've got a ton of camping experience. My my question would be, why do you camp? Oh, absolutely. It's it's too. I've always been an outdoor person. I think you know. I used to be a teacher, 
And uh, it just doesn't suit me and it doesn't suit Kathy to be inside, which is part of the reason we became adventure motorcyclists, obviously, because of the landscape and the beauty and the people and the animals. I like all aspects of nature and so does Kathy. So if you end the day and you just pop into a motel or a hotel room or something, number one, it's more expensive usually. And number two, you're cutting yourself off from the experience. You're cutting yourself off from your your own cooking, um, sitting there and looking at the sunsets, uh, sitting by a river. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the most magical times, isn't it? Yeah, I, I totally connect with what you're saying. For me, I feel more comfortable, far more comfortable camping than I do carrying my stuff into an establishment, always. I totally agree with that. And also, we're, we're not totally people person. I mean, we are sociable, but I, I love silence. And nature provides that. Uh, the noises of nature are the most wonderful. Well, let's talk about how you travel. Let's talk about the bikes and how they're set up as far as uh, panniers, like hard panniers, soft panniers, tank bags, etc. Can you just walk through that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm on a Yamaha XT660Z Tenere um, with Kathy on the back. Uh, we have a pannier each. Um, mine has just got a couple of t-shirts and tools in it. Uh, and on Kathy's side, she has uh, the camera equipment and her clothes and a tiny bit of makeup. <laughs> and then we have an army, I, I'm sure you're aware of these big green army sausage bags, canvas bags. They're absolutely brilliant. That's almost bottomless. And it's got it's got two functions. It takes um, our tent, it takes the sleeping bags, it takes the sleeping mat, um, and also it's a backrest for Kathy. Right, and, and so this is all your camping gear in that one bag. Absolutely, everything is in that one bag. So we keep it all together, and we keep it neat and tidy. Yeah, I know the I know the army bags you're talking about that open at the top, and some of them will have um like an elongated hole that you put the ring through, and then you put the snap on. Is is that your style? That's exactly the one I've had, and I've had it since I left here on November the first, two thousand and nine. So I mean, that's how strong they are. The army uses them. So uh, are are you one to upgrade gear a lot, or do you stick with something for a very long time? No, I don't upgrade at all. It's pretty much like my my sausage bag, even if it ends up being only duct tape. As long as something is working, there's no point in changing it. I'm not one for I'm not one for massive, massive amounts of gadgets. Especially, of course, there's two of us. There's the bike. You've got the weight to consider. So over the years, of course, that's why I was so happy to come on here because we've made all the mistakes, all the camping mistakes. You know, um, taking too much. I remember when Lois and Austin, you know, Lois Price and Austin Vince. Of course. Yeah, we have them both on the show. Of course you have. Yeah, they, they came to see me off. And uh, the first thing Austin said was, well, it looks like you've thrown everything out of your house and it landed and stuck to your bike. <laughs> so we've cut down. We've cut down since then. And, and you do learn. How do you do that? Like, because that's everyone's issue. Everyone, even if you're going camping for a weekend or a week, it is so difficult not to overpack or not to pack to your field to the brim. And then you drive to the store to get some food and you go, oh, I've got no place to get the food. How do you keep your gear down? It's exactly that. You, you need to be quite brutal, really. And unfortunately, you know, if you go for one weekend camping, you might not learn all the tricks. But over a period of time, you, you just sort of realize, look, I haven't used that for six months and I've been lugging it around the whole time. Um, you know, like having a can opener and a knife. That kind of small things like that. You just need the knife. Um, and, mm -hmm. and it boils down to everything. And eventually you, you whittle it down so that you've got everything that you both need. Um, we both have different sort of things that we like, but between Kathy and I, we've worked it all out. 
I think a lot of the the reasons that we take so much is just fear, right? I mean, we, we we've talked about this sort of thing before about fear of of being there and finding out, oh, I don't have a can opener, I don't have whatever it is I need. How do you deal with that that fear of of, of missing something? Sure, absolutely. Well, the, the important thing is, you know, day by day, border by border, nothing lasts forever. That's my favorite motto. So if if something goes wrong or you don't have something, you're not actually going to die from it, are you? You might not be able. It might not be able to open that can of corned beef. You might be a bit peed off. You might have a bottle of wine and you don't have an opener or something like that. But there's always a plan you can make. Um, and there's always locals nearby if you need to get food or certain other things. But it, but it does. It, it gets better and better each time you go because you've learned from your mistakes. What do you do for cooking? Now, do you guys cook sort of instant meals or you do like full on normal cooking when you're when you're camping? Um, we always cook. Um, we have a small stove, um, but we also build fires. Now, this is really, really vital. Um, I, I, I really enjoy having an open fire, but the safety issue is very important there. I do, I do um, say to people, keep your fire very small, just enough to uh, be able to cook on, and make sure that you prepare beforehand the fire. In other words, you know, if you're amongst pine needles, it's a ridiculous thing to do. You need to sweep the whole area. The important thing is to set up your camp really, really well from the beginning and make sure that everything is, is, is tip top. We have, um, we have quite an interesting thing, Jim, the way that we approach it. We have the, the S and the C. The S is for me and the C is for Kathy, as you know. But S stands for safety and C stands for comfort. So what I'm saying is, what do you want to achieve? What do you want to get on camping? And Kathy and I always go through that checklist. Checklist. It's the safety list and the comfort list, which we can go through with you if you fancy, because it's uh, oh, quite interesting yes. for people. That's really good. Let's start there. Let's do that. Okay, sure. Well, I mean, let's just go for safety straight away. I only said that because of the fire. That's a perfect example. Make sure you've swept all around the area so that you're not going to set off a bushfire, evidently. But that's only one small part of it. The first thing is to turn up and decide, okay, first of all, is this place legal? That's the first thing. Because you don't want to upset people. You don't want to camp on people's land without permission. Um, so that's the first thing. And also go by your gut feeling. Because uh, you might find that the place that you were choosing to go to, there might be a sort of, a, maybe a ghetto a, a couple of minutes away and you realize that this might not be the right place. So even if you're very tired, I do suggest if you don't feel comfortable about a place, then you should leave that area and move on a little bit. So that's part of the safety. Um, the second part of safety, which is super important to me, are you aware, Jim, that I'm, I'm highly allergic to stings from insects and bees? Yeah, you know, I've certainly seen some of the, the things that you've got. I uh, I didn't know you had an allergy though. Oh no, I'm absolutely dreadful. So this this comes in as part of the safety. I carry an EpiPen, um, and if, if I if I get stung by a bee, I've got literally about forty minutes until I die because my throat closes mm. up. So um, yeah, Kathy quite enjoys injecting me in the leg, um, <laughs> which, which she's done a couple of times, and it gives you just enough time to to get to hospital. So um, obviously in designated campsites, it's not as important, but uh, this is part of the S for safety, is uh, when you set up your tent, do exactly the same thing with the fire, uh, brush the whole area around where you've decided to put your tent. So um, you know this will mitigate 
uh, animals creeping up on you, insects, spiders, snakes, etc., when you've got a little bit of an open area around your tent. It also, uh, of course, when you're, when you're sweeping that area, it brings in the comfort side as well because you clear broken sticks, you, um, which could puncture the tent as well and puncture you when you're sleeping. So you just have to try and you know, get rid of the leaves, get rid of the rocks, get it as flat as you possibly can before you set up your tent. So that's part of the safety and part of the comfort. Um, the other thing, very, very important, is where's your location? For example, uh, I'll give you a good one. They always say uh, camp around trees, so you might need to hang up a, a tarp or you might want to hang up a washing line. Uh, you've got to be very careful about that. Uh, a story I have is when we were in Costa Rica, um, we camped in a, in a forest and um, we wanted to move because uh, it, it was slightly boggy in that area. And we moved the tent and when we woke up the next morning, a huge branch had dropped exactly where our old tent, where the old tent oh. position had been. So that's, wow. that's an, yeah, absolutely. So that's another thing to be aware of your environment. Where are you actually camping? Are you next to a river where it could flood? Are you at an area where it's got some, um, you know, raised ground where the water might come down? Cause you might, you might set up the tent in perfectly great conditions, but then, uh, you know, you, you could hit a massive thunderstorm straight after that. And that's, that's another reason, uh, which safety and comfort comes in. Make sure that you set up your tent properly. Don't rush it. I think a lot of people do that. They whack in the, the pegs, they, they pull the tent up and they haven't got it taught. They haven't got it correct. And that night you'll have a gust of wind or a cyclone or something and you'll get blown into midair. So I think it's really important to take your time. Also, if you've got a two-section tent, you don't want the inner and outer layer touching because you'll get moisture on there. Um, a, a, a wonderful tip I have while we're on it is uh, lots and lots of people who go camping, I'm sure you know this, Jim, they set up their tent and then in the middle of the night they need the loo, the toilets or something, and you get up and you kick one of your tent pegs or you trip over one of the guy ropes. And I think it happens to absolutely everybody. So I've mm -hmm. got two little tips for that. Um, some people say put a rock onto the, onto the pegs, but I think that's ridiculous because you'll just end up kicking the pegs. So what I do is I tie a little piece of plastic bag onto the peg and then I hammer it all the way into the ground so that you can see where it is, but you've got nothing to kick. The other thing we do as well is um, we tie little bits of plastic bag onto the guy ropes because a, a white plastic bag will um, reflect the moon or whatever and you can see it and you won't be tripping up all over the place. Right. So that's, that's, that's part of setting up. So setting it up, keeping it really neat. Um, what we do as well, I mean, if you're camping on your own, it's different, but uh, we designate jobs and we've got it perfectly down now. So Kathy is the one that does the comfort side, basically, almost. She won't let me near that tent. And another tip is don't throw your sleeping bag, your mat, your tent and everything onto the ground because it's a perfect invitation for insects and spiders and creepy crawlies to instantly find their way in somewhere, which they always will. So what we do is Kathy, Kathy is the one that sets up the tent. Um, obviously, the sweeping and that we do together. And then I go off and uh, chop wood, chop kindling, um, get the, the, the fire set up in a classic, um, I like it in a sort of um, pyramid type shape because those are the best fires. They don't tend to go out. 
We also carry um, a candle um, because that's very good for starting the fires and uh, sometimes fire lighters as well. Uh, another mistake lots of people make is they go, well, I've got loads of petrol in my petrol tank. If you use that on the fire, it just instantaneously burns off. It doesn't really start the yeah. fire very well. So it's better to have a, a candle that you can cut up um, or, or a fire lighter. That's a very good point. So you're cutting the piece of candle off. You're setting it down underneath your tinder and you're lighting the candle and that gives you that continuous flame to get yourself going if you haven't done a, a great job prepping your fire. Absolutely. You've got it bang on. Um, and, and once again, as in with setting up the tent, take your time, do it properly. Uh, 90% of fires that don't start is because somebody rushes it. Make sure you've got a proper base, obviously the candle like you just said. Maybe if you've got a bit of wood, um, sorry, a bit of paper or something that helps, a bit of newspaper. And then your kindling must be very thin, very, very small. And I, I like to do it up in, a, in, as I said, a pyramid position, a bit like a teepee, like a wigwam, um, because you get a lot of air through there. Uh, the, other, the other method, and a big mistake that people make is they just throw wood on top at all different angles. The other method, apart from the pyramid shape, is to put all your wood in a line. And it sounds very, very strange, but like soldiers in the line. So you've got the kindling, you've got the paper, and then you put your, your smaller bits, then slightly bigger, and then the biggest bits on the top. But if you keep them in, the, in a line, it allows air through to the fire as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, those, are, those are great tips. Uh, it's, lighting a fire is quite an art that you, you only really get good at after doing it a lot. But those, those important things to remember that, that I'll just throw in there that you're saying about is the fact what you're saying about the heat is the, the heat has to, you, you're actually heating things up to catch them on fire. And if they're on a, a cold, wet ground, for instance, that's taking heat away. So that's why you want to put up on the sticks. Like you said, you make a bed of sticks and you and you, you start to build your fire on that. And that the smallest uh, material that you're burning with has to be super dry and very, very tiny, very, very thin. And then you go to bigger. And then, of course, the other important thing you said there is air. It has to get air. So you have to have gaps between all of the stuff. So it should be at least the gap of, of whatever the size of wood that you have. You should have an equal gap beside it to let air through. That is absolutely correct. You've got it bang on. I, I, I can tell that you've made your own fires. <laughs> <laughs> many, many, many fires. Yes, I, I love it. And while we're on this... to take just a quick break i have two things i want to tell you about when we come back a lot more with spencer stay with us well you remember i told you about the hex easy can accessory manager that's the accessory manager for motorcycles with CAN bus systems. Now they've added support for Ducati Desert X and very soon it's going to be the Multistrata V4. Now you know what it's like to wire an accessory like auxiliary lights, for instance. You run wires to the batteries, then to a relay, and then the lights, and then up to a switch. And then you try and find an ignition wire with a 12-volt signal so that it will power your switch. That way, when you shut your ignition off, the lights won't stay on. But with the new CAN bus systems, that's often difficult or impossible to find because sometimes it doesn't exist. They don't run 12 volts up to the switch like that anymore. These are computers talking with computers. Enter the hex easy can accessory manager. The point of this thing is you run one set of wires to the battery, which 
that alone eliminates so many problems. When you run multiple wires to your battery, you have problems with contacts, you have problems with tightening up your contacts, getting the contacts done up because there's only so much room there. And then future problems like breakdown between the contacts, especially because they're often different kinds of contacts, different kinds of metal, they corrode between one another, and that's where you get a bunch of issues. This eliminates that. You've just got the one set of wires. Then you wire accessories to the EasyCan module itself. And the wonderful thing about this is that it plugs into your computer through the onboard data reader port, and it uses your motorcycle controls that you already have that are from the factory to control your accessories. And that does so much for you. First of all, there's tons of flexibility with the different ways that you can configure it because you can configure it yourself. And then on top of that, you don't have to worry anymore about shutting the ignition off and having something left on because EasyCan shuts it all off for you. On top of that, if there was a short or a problem with the way you wired one of your accessories, the EasyCan automatically shuts that accessory off. It protects that circuit electronically. If you have a modern bike with an EasyCan system and you're going to put anything on the bike at all, Hex EasyCan Accessory Manager is what you will absolutely need. Now, Hex Innovate is a maker of that. Hex Innovate is also probably best known for the Hex GS911. And that's that BMW diagnostic tool that you can plug into any BMW motorcycle. It will tell you what error codes and what codes you have on there, things that are going on in your motorcycle that only a dealership would have been able to see before. This thing is absolutely a game changer for BMW riders. It takes that worry away of riding this modern bike with all this electronics out into the middle of nowhere, having it quit and having no clue where to start to get this thing going. That's the GS911, all by Hex Innovate. The website is hexinnovate.com. By the way, that link is on our website as well. If you ever have trouble remembering it, just go to our website, the bottom of the page. It'll be there, hexinnovate.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, hexinnovate.com. Now, here are two mechanical buttons that you can add to your motorcycle in just minutes. It clamps on. It's, I think it's literally one screw that, that really holds it together. Easy to take off, move to another bike. That is the Atlas Throttle Lock. It holds your throttle in position so you can relax your hand, relax your wrist, your arm, your shoulder. It makes all the difference for riding. And I used to think that a throttle lock was for big, long, open stretches. You know, I, I picture long highways. And now I am amazed how often I use the throttle lock. The Atlas, though, is the best of the best. It is the premium throttle lock. There's nothing else like this. First of all, it's all metal design and, and it's beautiful. I mean, this thing is like craftsmanship of a fine Swiss watch is what I often say, or an Apple product. Two buttons on it, one for engage, one for disengage. You don't have to look at it. You know exactly what you're doing from the feel of this throttle lock. And it's one of those rare things that you buy for your motorcycle that looks great, but also feels like it's OEM. It feels like it came with the motorcycle. It works that good. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. The owners are riders just like you and I. AtlasThrottleLock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. I love it. And while we're on this, just just let me just jump in here with the fire thing. If you could um, just give your, for as far as what you're doing, for, you said you cook on the fire all the time. How do you do that? Do you have a grill? Do you hang your pots? What do you do? Okay, yes, we have a grill. And um, a, a definite recommendation is don't get a single grill that you just put on top of the fire. Because I I know that everybody has dropped something into the fire, haven't they? So I oh, recommend, yeah. you know, those double ones that you fold over. 
So if you've got sausages or you've got chicken breasts or whatever, you've clamped it in basically. And then it's number one, it's much easier to turn over. You're not constantly using a, um, a fork or, a, or, or tongs to turn things over and they're not going to roll off and, and land in the fire. And then you've got to clean them with water and, and end up, uh, you know, eating bits of coal and charcoal as well. Oh, so so that's, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very important. Um, the, uh, the other thing is we have a, a frying pan because a frying pan is very handy, but we've got a very industrial one. You know, it's, it's all cast iron. Um, obviously a plastic handle is not ideal. Uh, the only problem with the cast iron, it gets hot, but you just use a t-shirt or something to, to pick that up with. And, and that's really basically what we have two plates, knife and fork each, um, a spoon and, and that pot is used for boiling coffee. Uh, it's used for boiling eggs. Um, and then we use the, the grill, um, for the meat type things. Okay. No, the great, great tip on the grill. I didn't know that. I haven't tried the double one yet. That's a very good point. I thought you were talking about legs on the grill, but I see oh, what you're no. saying. You're talking about the one that clamps the food. That's, Absolutely. Okay. That's, that makes and, sense. And, and, and sorry to interrupt, Jim. That was rude. Um, also, no, more, no. even more importantly, is uh, as I'm circumnavigating and anyone who's at the coast, one of the most wonderful sources of food is obviously fish. Now, fish is very difficult to cook on a barbecue because it tends to stick and the skin tends mm. to stick. So every time you try to turn your fish over on a standard barbecue, you're losing bits of it and it ends up just being a huge mushy, mushy mess. Um, with this double grill, plain and simple, you're only going to be opening it once and that's when it's ready because you can just turn it over, twist it back and forth. Um, you can add oil to it and it just drips through. Um, so it, it's, it's 100% the only way to go. Wow, great tip. Yeah, that that's really good. Okay, and, and were you you were still on safety, weren't you? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, just to add another thing, obviously on the fire, a great thing is to uh, circle it with uh, stones. Um, that right. just sort of delineates the, the area. It stops the coals rolling out um, too far. It it gives you more control, and it looks a hell of a lot neater. I mean, there's very few places where you can't find. Um, you know, say 10, 15 um, big stones to put around the fire. And also they serve as um, a prop to um, lay the grill on, doesn't it, as well? So that, sure. so that absolutely helps. Obviously, um, the biggest tip that everybody knows is keep the place clean. Make it better yeah. than it was when you left. So, I mean, for example, oh, if, if there's some litter there that's been there from a previous person, don't be pig-headed. Pick that up as well. We always do that. We, we end up um, we brush uh, and bury all of that. We, we, we add water. We make sure it cools down. Um, we do that early. And then we set about cleaning up the camp, covering everything up, brushing it over. And then we get a, a, a bag and we take everything with us. Mm, that's great. The, wor the worst thing you can, you can have is when you turn up to a beautiful area, say on a river bank, et cetera, and you look over the bank and people have just thrown their um, their rubbish and their discarded food, et cetera, et cetera, um, over the edge of the riverbank. And that's another yeah. thing with safety, obviously, isn't it, Jim? We all know about uh, insects and animals. They love food. So that's an important thing. Don't ever leave food around. Um, you'll, you'll, I mean, obviously, you'll immediately attract ants. You'll attract spiders. You'll attract bees. But then obviously in other countries, you have things like um, around your way, you've got bears, etc. In Africa, yeah. we've got monkeys and the more dangerous baboons. So um, that's the thing to worry about. 
also continuing on that safety thing, and I know it sounds really funny, Jim, but uh, you must check when you arrive at your site that it's not actually a path, a path for animals. That sounds really obvious, but uh, you'll laugh at this one. We camped at a campsite in Costa Rica. And it was a designated campsite, but it was very, very, very basic. And um, we fell asleep. And during the night, um, we'd, there was a movement on the edge of the tent. And uh, Kathy, it sort of leant against the side of our tent. And Kathy pushed it. And it was immovable. And then a few seconds later, it disappeared. And we were like, what the hell is that? So I went out and there was nothing there. And then in the morning, we spoke to uh, the guy who owned the place. And you won't believe this. He said, did you see the crocodile? Oh, and it was oh, no. it, it, yes absolutely it was a pathway he should have said something to us but it, actually he wasn't there when we set up it was a pathway from the main river to the sea and the crocodile crocodiles do actually swim in the sea as well so he'd obviously come along past the tent wondered what it was leant up against it while he was walking past and headed off so that's another <laughs> thing to consider not always <laughs> crocodiles but i mean even if you're on the route where ants are they have uh, bullet ants. They have um, in Africa. They have army ants, and army ants are huge, and they bite very viciously. And they will not go around things. They will go over things. So if your tent is in their pathway that they they normally use, you're going to get covered in ants and and be woken up very very unhappy. Oh, that's interesting. You know, and and spotting the runs or the paths for animals is kind of difficult if you don't know what you're looking for. But if you spend enough time just looking around, you'll start to see these little paths and it'll just become more clear. And after a while, when you walk through the forest, you, they'll just stand out like sidewalks. You can you can see them when as you come up. I mean, obviously you missed your your one there with the uh, with the crocodile, but that, that's just too much. But you have a good you have a very good point there because especially if you're in the proper bush, if there is some sort of path, I mean, even if it's a very thin one, there's only two things that are doing that. One is humans, and uh, you know, ninety nine point nine nine percent of people are wonderful. But you don't really want to be on a, on a path where humans are wandering, um, especially at night. You might scare them, they might scare you. And secondly, like you also said, the animals. And you, you do end up spotting these paths because obviously they're not part of the normal landscape, which is unspoiled. So you know that yeah. something's been going on there. So it's better to move, even if it's, say, 10, 20 meters away from them, but just to give them some space and to give you some space too. Yeah, yeah, excellent tip. Yep. Okay, what else? Um, okay, uh, well, a very important thing, and this is politeness-wise, is don't go to the toilet in rivers. Um, I mean, mm. don't even urinate in rivers and definitely don't poop in rivers. It's extremely rude and it's not the way to behave. Especially in Africa, rivers are very often a water source for people, aren't they? And you, mm -hmm. you don't know that uh, just around the next bend in the river, there might be a village there where people are, are bathing in there or using that water even to drink. So that's a dreadful thing to do. You must always, always dig a hole and um, do your business there and then cover it and cover it quite deep. Just, you know, take your time because there's nothing worse than standing on an on a, on a animal poo and 50 times worse is, is standing on a human poo. Oh, so that's yeah. all part of... It's also, it attracts animals as well. So as well as the comfort and safety and politeness factor, it's very important to bury, bury your waste. Yeah. Okay. Uh, would you like me to go through a couple of things that um, 
we we take and that we can't do without. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, do that. Okay, so um, another important, a lot of things that we take, a very important thing. A lot of people think that they'll be able to light a fire and uh, that will provide them with their light for the evening. It's dangerous, number one. It attracts people, number two. And you go through incredible amounts of, of uh, wood. So don't ever hope that your fire that you're going to make is going to be your, your source of light. The most important thing that you can take is a head torch. Uh, a handheld torch, okay, it's, it's fine. You have one of those as a backup when you're in the tent, but it means one of your hands is out of action, isn't it? So I know head torches look very silly, but to me, they're the most important thing. And Kathy and I have ours on us permanently. Um, you know, even if you just want to read, if you want to have a look at the map, if you want to have a last scan of of, of um, the tent and the sleeping bags, etc., for creepy crawlies, it's it's the best thing to have. Um, on top of that, as well, is good shoes, because everybody wants to get out of their bike boots, don't they? At the end of the day, because yeah. you've almost got you've almost got a heartbeat in your feet because they get so sore. <laughs> uh, so you you want to jettison those. Uh, we normally keep those in in the tent, which um, luckily neither of us have got smelly feet. But uh, once again, you're going to need a pair of Crocs at worst, really, because the last thing you want to do is to get out of the tent in the middle of the night and stand on a scorpion or stand on a bee or something like that. So it's important to to have um, those backup shoes as well. Okay, that's, that's a very good tip. Yeah. Um, another thing, you will never, ever get rid of insects completely. And this is all part of the comfort section as well. So obviously having cleared your, your area, having um, made a flat level uh, place for the tent, we transfer all the gear directly from the motorbike on into the tent. The reason for that is the tent comes in, you set up the tent, you make it all taut, and you keep it zipped up at all points. The tent is not a transit point. It's not a throughway. It's a secure area for you. You'll be spending most of your evening outside. So what, what we do is we set up the tent together. Then I get the, the green army sausage bag. Kathy goes into the tent with it and closes the tent up. And that means you're giving minimum amount of time for any dodgy animal to get in there. And it also keeps all your gear clean. So directly from the bike into the tent. And then mm, she, can, yeah. she can take her time in there, um, set everything up, and make it all nice and, nice and neat. Uh, well, and I can head off on the bike. Uh, the bike's been offloaded, so I've got space, and I can uh, load up wood on the back of the bike, which is often what I do. Um, I fill the panniers with kindling and stuff like that. Also, when you're approaching a campsite, uh, where you, if you've if you've picked one in advance, you know, and you've got a, a waypoint for it, it's always important to look if there's any sort of little local shops or anything on in the last five, ten kilometers in there. Because you will always arrive at your campsite, won't you, Jim? And there will be something missing. And uh, mm -hmm. if you if you've already gauged, oh, there was that tiny little shop five kilometers back. You're not wasting time wandering around in the bush or to villages where they don't have what you want. So um, right. that's another good tip. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just for timing as well, because you're very tired, aren't you? When you when you get to your campsite. And that's another yeah. vital thing. Don't ever set up at night time because you'll make those all of those mistakes that we're trying to avoid. You won't see the insects. You won't see the path. Uh, everything becomes more difficult. 
you you put things up more quickly. You know, you're basically messing around. So I would say to everybody, if you are camping, you know, if you've got one night in the hostel, then it's fine. You can turn up just as dark's coming. But if you're camping, make sure you give yourself at least an hour and a half. I know that sounds a hell of a lot, but to get everything into the tent, to get the set, tent set up well, to get all your wood, to get all your provisions, to get all your food all ready. Uh, the sun goes down very, very quickly in, in the Southern Hemisphere, especially. I mean, in Africa, within 20 minutes, it's dark and it can catch you by surprise. And you, you want to be ready and, and happy when that happens. Um, yeah, I'm so glad you said that. That is that is such a key thing. And a lot of people will figure, well, I've got a headlamp I can just set up at night, but it just does not work. Take it from Spencer, who's been camping for his entire life and by motorcycle full time for 14 years. That That is a really good tip. Thank you. Yes, it, I, I think it's one of the most important. And, uh, you know, we talked right at the beginning about, about gear. Uh, obviously, the tent, we haven't touched on tents, but uh, I would say there's uh, there's one rule. Buy a tent as expensive as you can afford because uh, quality comes with money, doesn't it? I mean, that's a plain mm-hmm. fact. The second thing I would say is um, look on websites. Go for reliable tents. Go for ones that other people have commented on. Uh, third thing is go for one size up. So if there's two of you, get a three-man tent. If there's three of you, get a four-man tent. I made the mistake mm-hmm. in Africa of because uh, I was on, alone, as you know. I circumnavigated alone. I um, bought a one-man tent. And Jim, it was like a coffin. It, it, it yeah. was ridiculous. And it, it affected my vibe. If you can't sit up in your tent, you know, if you if you just got to squeeze yourself in and lie down, that's perfectly fine for one or two or three, maybe even four nights. But any longer than that, and it's going to it's gonna really pee you off a little bit, um, where you just slide into your tent. There's nothing you can do in there. You just have to lie there and go to sleep. So obviously, yeah, especially we'll, with motorcycle yeah. gear, because you have no no room to put your gear. And then if you get a wet day or something like that, and you can't bring your gear in and try and sort things out, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. You need that that extra space. And a, a lot of people, I mean, we we've got a slightly bigger tent. We've obviously everyone worries about weight, but I did learn from Africa. But that, that those extra through few kilograms, they really don't matter. You know, you can just stop eating pies for the last month just before you travel. And, and you'll for lose, a little you'll bit lose, of comfort, you mean? Yeah, you'll lose those three kilograms that you're worrying about with the tent. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So for the yeah. sake of an extra half a meter, where you can even put your pannier with your cameras and everything by your head inside the tent, um, you, you know, it, it's a real help and you can sleep better as well. Um, another thing, I'm rushing along here, but it, while it comes into my head, Jim, a lot of people have this insane idea that they have to have their motorcycle in the tent or very near the tent. Now, this is not a good idea. Motorbikes fall over, and that's just a fact, because I've actually experienced it. When I was in Burkina Faso, um, I put the tent right next to me. Uh, I put the uh, motorcycle right next to my tent, and in the night it fell over because there, there was rain during the night, and the, the, obviously the ground got soggy, and the bike mm-hmm. fell. Now, if someone is going to steal your motorcycle, whether it's directly next to your bike or five meters away, it's going to make no difference. They're going to they're going to push it off as quick as they did if it was right next to the tent. So don't risk your motorbike landing on you. It's just not necessary. Mm, um, that's really. Did you get hurt on that? No, I didn't. It it just pulled down one one corner of the tent, so I was fairly lucky. Oh, but, I but I have seen people with this setup where they they push their motorcycle into a section inside the tent. 
And to me, uh, fine. To me, it's a gimmick. I really don't believe in that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I would never put the motorcycle close to it. It's one of the first things I think of. And of course, that's part of your safety thing where you're saying about look around and be aware of what's around you. I mean, I always tell people you should be looking for what we call widow makers, you know, or those dead branches way up high. You know, you don't want to camp under those. And it's the same thing when you set up your motorcycle beside you, you're kind of setting yourself up for a potential problem. So that's another great tip. Yeah, no, no, you definitely are. And I mean, it's, it's the same with the safety on not rushing with your tent um, and, and putting it up because... Uh, I remember very, very clearly we we were in Patagonia, and I'm sure you're well aware that Patagonia is super famous for its winds. It's got mm-hmm. very, very high winds, and um, we arrived in the in the middle of an open area, so obviously there was no buffer from the wind, but it was fairly fine. And I made a classic mistake. I was tired, and I didn't put the pegs in correctly. I didn't bang them down hard enough, and uh, in the middle of the night, we found ourselves rolled up like a donut. Um, you know, with the tent wrapped around us and all the pegs had come out. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's funny, you know, in retrospects, but if you're trying to get a good night's sleep um, and, you know, be prepared and, and your batteries recharge for the next day, you just want to make sure that everything works throughout the night. Um, just, be, mm-hmm. just be ready for the unexpected. That's, that's all. Whether I, I, it's heavy, heavy rain or an elephant, you know, walking along a path and standing on you. Just, just think about every single possibility. I like what you said about recharging batteries and and because I think sleep can be looked at kind of overlooked, but it's super important because obviously you're not going to be awake the next day. You're going to feel terrible. Your day is going to be horrible. So, you know, it, it makes perfect sense what you're saying there. It's just, it, just like recharging your batteries. Absolutely. It is totally, um, it goes under the radar. And, and also just from a basic point of view, you know, if you're not sleeping well, you get tetchy. And if you're traveling as a couple, you want to keep everything sweet. You don't want to have those little tiffs, yeah. those little arguments. And if you've been, um, let's say you've been wet all night, you're not going to sleep. Um, yeah. if, you're, if your tent blows away, you're not going to sleep. And it corresponds to the problems the next morning because you start making mistakes on the motorcycle. Because you're, you know, there's nothing worse. We've all done long journeys, even in cars as well where your eyes start getting heavier and heavier and heavier and you obviously have to pull over. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people, they ride their bike and they think, oh, well, I just need to get to that. You know, it's only 10 more Ks and they're tired out. And it's obviously the most dangerous time. Um, yeah. You know, most accidents end up 10 minutes, 20 minutes from your destination because you're tired and you're trying to force yourself through. So to have that recharging of batteries, that comfortable night is, is absolutely vital. And it, it boils down to the, the, the other considerations. If we can just go back to tents for one minute, Jim, uh, what uh, climate are you dealing with? For example, in Africa, it's almost vital to have a, a tent that opens on both sides. The reason for that, air, airflow. It's as simple as that. If you're dealing with um, 30, 30, up to 35 degrees, a tent can become a furnace if it's only got one entrance. So I, I recommend having a tent, as I said before, one that's one size too big for you. Two, make sure you've got enough aeration in there, whether it's those little windows that have um, a little protective area to stop the rain coming in, um, that helps. Um, also, if you can have that little section at the front, kind of like a veranda area where you can sit and chop vegetables if it's raining, prepare some stuff if it's raining, but you're not in the main part of the tent. So you're not dropping crumbs into, you know, into where your sleeping bag is mm-hmm. that will attract creatures. Yep. 
the vestibule. Uh, do you carry a, a tarp? Yes, I, I carry a tarp because it's number one, waterproof. It's number two, it doubles your, your area that you can use. So, And thirdly, if you have extremely heavy rain, you can use it as another barrier directly over your tent. Uh, exactly. Fourth, yeah. Fourthly, it's wonderful for laying things out on um, when you're organizing yourself um, when you're about to camp or when you're leaving in the morning. It's really nice, especially if you're in a, a, a boggy area or slightly muddy area. You know, you don't want to filthy yourself up as well. And you can see everything more clearly. You can line things up. So not only does it provide you with um, uh, an area to get out of the sun, an area to get out of the rain, it also helps you with your organizational section. So I would absolutely recommend a tarpaulin to anybody who's traveling for a, for a period of time. It also means that if your tent is slightly on the small side, you're not uh, claustrophobic and spending all your time in that tiny little area. You can enjoy the outdoors, but you're underneath the tarp. Continuing on from, from which tent to choose, obviously, once you've made your decision on that, there, there is uh, one thing that I do take, Jim, and it's, it's from my childhood. Uh, when I used to go camping with my parents, they always used to bring my pillow uh, from my bedroom because we're talking when I was four or five years old. And mm -hmm. at that stage, you know, when you're a kiddie, it was purely for the comfort uh, of hugging it, actually. You know what you're like when you're a kiddie mm -hmm. and, and it feels familiar and it's homely and that sort of thing. But I found that if you have a, if you have a pillow and it sounds really extravagant and you know me, Jim, I'm not extravagant. I don't take unnecessary things, but Kathy and I have both found that a pillow makes an incredible difference to your night's sleep. Uh, you don't want to wake up with a crink in your neck, do you, where you've been, um, lying on, on a solid, solid piece of ground. It just gives you that little yeah. bit of levitation and that little bit of home comfort. And it's, it's really worth it. And there are pillows now that you can buy. Um, these inflatable ones, I don't know if you've seen them, they look like armbands. Those are absolute garbage. Uh, I'm sorry to, uh, sorry, to, sorry to the manufacturers. I, th I thought you were going to talk about how you like them, but uh, the only inflatable ones I've ever tried, I've absolutely hated as well. They're ridiculous. You may as well lie on a piece of concrete. You know, your head, yeah. your head bounces off it or your head rolls off it and they're extremely uncomfortable and they do mm -hmm. pop as well. So, uh, normal pillows, uh, are wonderful. You can, you can actually squash them up really, really small and stuff them into your sausage bag. And the other thing about the tarp, I've thought of reason number five, Jim, the green sausage bag that we use is obviously not waterproof. Um, so we use the tarp. Uh, to help um, pack up. And then it's the, one of the very, very last things we do is we roll the sausage bag in it and then it's waterproof. So obviously oh. your pillow, your all your camping gear, everything remains dry. Uh, one of the worst things you can do is pack up in the wet, pack up with a wet tent also. So another thing I recommend, obviously it can't happen every time because you might be leaving when it's raining. But a very good idea is to just give one hour of sunshine to that tent just to take the moisture off, the dampness off. Because if you're traveling for months, you're going to end up with fungus and all those kind of things on your pillow, on your sleeping bag, um, everywhere. So yeah, if you can try and dry out things to the maximum, and as we know, I mean, even putting on your bike boots and your bike gear when, when you're wet, it's not the nicest start to the day, is it? 
No, no, definitely not. And, and if it was pouring rain when you're packing up, uh, one of the things that, that I do is I'll put the tarp over the tent to take down so you don't get everything even wetter, in particular the tent itself after you take the fly off. But if my fly is really soaked, I'll, I'll put that wet fly separate if it's that wet. And, and that way, hopefully the tent body itself doesn't get wet. Do you find yourself doing that? Yes, that's absolutely perfect. And that's exactly the way to get around the, the rain. Um, obviously, if it's extremely heavy sheeting rain at an angle, you know, there's not a lot you can do. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some light to medium rain, that what you just said totally sorts out the situation. It gives you a workspace. And it goes to that back to the original thing I said about what do you actually want out of camping? And it's safety and comfort, isn't it? And if you've got both mm-hmm. of those, you will leave with your batteries charged and you will feel good. You won't feel sleep deprivation, changing your mood, changing your riding, changing your, your relationship even, you know. Um, yeah. So it, important to have those things. And the, the one other thing that we do have, Jim, I, I didn't on my first trip, was a small inflatable mat um, just to take the edge off on the ground. Now, I don't like the ones where you have a machine, where you pump them up, uh, or you connect uh, to your battery and that pumps them up. Um, that's too many things to go wrong, and uh, it also is more packing. So I prefer just, just these simple ones that you can blow up with your mouth. I find that if you have one that's just a few inches thick, it just takes that edge off, especially if you've prepared the camp beforehand. If, you're, if, you're, if you've taken the little stones and the little sticks and all that thing away, and then you have that, that small sleeping mat, that, that will solve things. Um, another obvious thing, you cannot get rid of insects completely, no matter how, how organized you are, no matter how well you do it. And this comes into that, um, comfort thing again. If you're up all night, um, getting bitten by mosquitoes or midges, like in Scotland, for example, you'll have a sleepless night. So as well as keeping the tent closed 99.9% of the time, only opening it when you go in and out. And then you need a good repellent. You absolutely need a good repellent uh, in in most places in the world. And then you just lather yourselves full of that. Um, make sure you've got a, a, a good sleeping bag. You know, you need the correct rating sleeping bag. There's no point in having a three-fiber um, uh, uh, sleeping bag if you're in Africa. You know, there's they have down or they have synthetic sleeping bags. Now, the down sleeping bags are... The best, of course, because they're lighter. They can be squashed down into nothing. But the negative side is that down sleeping bags are more expensive and they get a bit smelly if they do get wet. But um, in cold conditions, they're a lot better than a synthetic sleeping bag. Whereas in Africa, you would be ludicrous to have, a, and a lot of South America, to have a down sleeping bag because you'd just be too hot and you'd end up mm-hmm. sleeping on top of it. So consider where you're going. Um, Consider what conditions you're going to be in and adapt the equipment that you buy um, to, the, to the area that you're going to. That's what I say. Okay. Another, an, another vital thing, um, this is on the list of things that you take with you, is uh, a water filter. Um, I think it's pretty important. So, um, obviously, if you're going to a designated campsite, um, obviously they, they will probably have um, potable water and tap water sure. that works. But if you're if you're yeah. tra- if you're traveling rough, there's a lot of things out there on the market. Um, there's one that we have. It's uh, I'm afraid I don't remember the name of it, but it can easily be looked up. It's basically a half liter each, 
and it's got filters, three different filters. Um, one is sort of a, like a coal filter, one is um, a metallic filter, and it, it takes out 99% of all the bacteria because the last thing you want is to drink dodgy water and end up with um, you know, a, a, a bad stomach when you're traveling on your mm -hmm. bike. So yeah, very important to sort that out as well. So you're using the, the water filter exclusively, you don't do boiling? I do boil as well. Uh, but okay. it, you know, if you're just stopping by a river and you haven't set up tent, uh, and you and you need to push it through quickly, and you need some water. It's it drips through and is ready within ten minutes, Jim. And we can all yeah. we can all spend ten fifteen minutes sitting at a beautiful view, can't we? While while our water is getting prepared, it's so much faster. And and there's pump ones as well. MSR has some uh, pump versions. Uh, the one I have is a, is a MSR one that does quite a bit of water, and it just makes it so much better because the boiling thing. Usually, what I'll do is I'll boil at night and then let it sit for the morning and then it's cool for drinking and you can pour it into your bag after that. But, um, that makes it so, like you said, you need water on the run, just pull over, pump it and away you go. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's it. And uh, yeah, don't travel without those. The other one is a, is a Kathy one, um, wet wipes. Uh, do you, mm -hmm. do you get those in Canada? Same. Yep. Uh, yes. I'm talking about the biodegradable ones. And also Jim, this is a little tip for people. Don't buy the perfumed ones. They attract insects. Uh, um, obviously that's for the market, you know, they want a baby's bum to smell nice or they want, you know, when you wash the face, they want it to smell nice, but just buy the neutral baby wipes with, with, um, with no perfume because it attracts bees and attracts other insects, um, which is not a good idea either. Do you have anything else? No, off the top of my head, I think we've, we've pretty much covered most of, most of it. Spencer, this is, this is fantastic. You've got such great tips there. And you know what? The thing is like, I'm a camper. I've been camping my whole life. And, and just hearing you talk, I can tell that not only have you camped a ton, but you pay attention to what works and what doesn't, and you're fine tuning it to get the most out of everything. And I think that's so important because to me, that's part of what makes camping fun and not a chore. Absolutely. That, oh, you've nailed it there. It makes it fun and not a chore because as you know, that famous saying, Camping is the most expensive way to live like a homeless person. Oh, I, I uh, haven't heard that. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, well, saying camping's the most expensive way to live like a homeless person. And, you know, uh, don't make it expensive. Make it comfortable. Um, that's why I keep going back to the S and the C, the safety and the comfort. Uh, as you also said just earlier, be aware of what you want. Be aware of the environment around you. Be aware of where you're camping and be aware of how you set up your, your system. And especially if you're traveling as a couple, designate jobs that you enjoy, that you both enjoy. Um, and everything goes a lot quicker because you're not both faffing around trying to do the same thing. Um, you know, I can go off and find a, a shop or whatever while Kathy's setting up the tent. And, and it just makes everything much easier. You, you basically want a smooth situation at the end of a hard day. Spencer, thanks so much. That is some great information. I really appreciate it. And, and I'll catch up with you again down the road. Okay, Jim, no problem. Thanks very much. And I look forward to speaking to you again.
I was speaking with Spencer Conway temporarily in the UK whilst waiting to head back to his motorcycle and get back on the road. Spencer's website is spencer-conway.com. You can follow his routes there and get his social, his books, etc. from that link. We've got some photos and, of course, all the links in the show notes for Spencer on our website, uh, as we do for every episode, at adventureriderradio.com. Now, we're taking a quick break here. I have two things that I want to tell you about. When we come back, we've got Lisa and Simon Thomas from To Ride the World, and they're going to give us their tips from 17 years of traveling and camping together on the road. Stay with us. If you're interested in camping from your motorcycle, there is no better place to deal with in the world than somebody who specializes in motorcycle camping. It is the motorcycle camping store. I think it's the only one like it. It's called motocampnerd.com, owned by Ben and Mary Williams. It is in Archdale, North Carolina, and this unique shop specializes in motorcycle camping gear. And it's a real store, not just an online store. They do that as well, and lots of it, but they're a real store that you can walk into, brick and mortar. Now, they handle big names like Nemo, Big Agnes, Sea to Summit, all of those things. But the best thing is they're campers themselves. They're passionate about motorcycle camping, and they are more than happy to help sort you out. If you have questions about what gear you should have or why one is better than the other for your application, just send them an email, give them a phone call. The website is motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Motocampnerd.com. Why make things hard on yourself? I mean, do you swim with rubber boots on? Of course not. So why are you standing on pegs that aren't properly designed for your style of riding? Well, to be fair, the manufacturer only has so much money to spend on those components when they build it, so that's what you get. But the great thing is that you can change them. And you know what? The OEMs know that serious riders are going to change their foot pegs. Quality, properly designed pegs from IMS products are designed specifically for adventure riding. They have a full line of them, varying in size from large to smaller, all race tough. And if you're like most people, just by installing IMS products foot pegs on your bike will make it look like you've had a huge advancement in skill level because they connect you to your bike like you've never been connected before. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Simon and Lisa Thomas spent 17 years traveling on two motorcycles with all their camping gear. And through the school of hard knocks and much experimentation, they honed their camping skills to a fine edge. Simon and Lisa, welcome back. Hey, Jim. Nice how you doing? Nice to be back. Oh, very, very well. Where are you guys right now? We are in our small cabin in northwest Wales in beautiful Snowdonia, UK. You have an ocean view, don't you? Like, don't you up on a we mountain do. sort of looking down at yeah. the ocean? Yeah, we're looking down at the um, estuary. So uh, we look over a small town called Abadovi. Uh, Abba being the mouth of, so it's the mouth of the estuary of the river Dovey, which goes out into the sea. And we can actually, wow. we actually, we, we simply watch the estuary fill up each day and then we can actually see the sea from where we're sitting. And we look over a, a biosphere, so uh, we have all of the, um, the eagles come in, so the ospreys. 
uh, and all the wild birds and the geese, etc. So it can get we quite have, noisy, we have, of, actually. we have a lot of owls right now. A load of owls right oh. now. But other than that, it's pretty quiet and it gets very dark at night and it's very peaceful. So we got, we got very lucky with where we are right now. Well, you guys were on the road for how many years? How many years were you riding around? We were on the road for 17 years. So we 17. set out in May 2003 for what we thought was going to be a year, a year and a half. And slowly but surely, uh, the road changed us. We were out there for, yeah, 17 years. Um, came back for what we thought was going to be a few weeks in 2019 uh, to get some medical stuff sorted out at the Lisa. Then the world changed and COVID happened. And uh, yeah, our plans changed. So we're working hard to get back to our bikes and back to our our traveling lives. But in the meantime, really enjoying another chapter of our lives with what we've got going on right now in the UK. Right. You're doing photography courses now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, when we, when we set out on the journey, I, I had genuinely never taken a photograph. These were taken a few snapshots, but we quickly fell in love with photography um, because we were so desperate to share what we were seeing, what we were experiencing every day. Um, and we put a lot of work and time into it, but we've got to a point now where, yeah, we're, we're teaching photography. We've got a school in the UK. We hold several um, residential courses each year. We've just launched, and when I say just, I mean last week, we just launched um, an iPhone one day masterclass. Um, but really just teaching people that it isn't a mystical science, you know, with a little bit of investment, a little bit of training. And I do mean a little bit. Um, anybody can take incredible photographs. So I tend to find a lot of people are quite intimidated mm, to press the buttons and try yeah. things. And some people just aren't sure where to start. So we say, well, look, start here, finish there. These are the tips and tricks to use. Chances are you're going to end up with a really great image that you're going to want to show on social media. And so mm -hmm. far, it's working pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned before, I mean, everybody's got a camera with them now. And it almost seems a crime to carry this thing around and not just learn a few little things you can do to turn your okay pictures into amazing pictures. I mean, do you know what? You've just, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting. Um, I, I, We've worked pretty hard in the last year, really getting to know um, the iPhone and the Android phones. And we tried teaching them together and it became quickly apparent that it was just too much to try and teach iPhone users and Android phone users at the same time. Mm. The uh, the techniques and the, and the tools are very different. But, you know, we've got an easy job. You get a few people who, who turn up who really do know the cameras inside out on the iPhones. But the majority um, tend to pick it up and they point and click. And the images that they produce are so good that they tend to leave it at that. Uh, and normally within the first 10 minutes, we've got students saying to us, oh my God, wow, that's incredible. I had no idea my phone could do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is it. They put so much into the lenses and stuff. And it must be an yeah. easy sell for you because all you have to do is show your photographs. And and I, I won't belittle you by saying, oh, you really got talent for that. I know you worked very hard to, to, <laughs> to learn how to shoot photographs, but I always think that's funny when people look at somebody, something that someone does and says, oh, they've got a real talent for that. Well, it's talent, but it's also a lot of hard work. It's talent. It's a lot of work, hard work. And then yeah. there's the real pro tip. If you want to really impress somebody with your photography, just delete all the rubbish stuff. Yeah. <laughs> just don't show that. That's true. Just show and then everyone goes, oh, wow, look at all these. You were out yesterday yeah. and you took three photos and they're amazing. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's what you do when you're <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, I took 300. You're only yeah, seeing yeah, the top yeah. three. But it's, so, uh, yeah. Well, uh, so back to camping. So, so you've been on the road, camping. like I said, 17 years, right? 17 yeah. years. How much of that is camping? Like, was all camping or how did you do it? Um, I would say, now it's going to be interesting. I would say... 
initially in the first few years, I would say it would be 80% camping Mm. at least just because of where we were. Um, And then as we changed continents and as you go into Asia, I would say the camping was less because the rooms are cheaper. So I would say maybe 50% camping when we were in Asia. Maybe even a little bit less. Then you've you've got other countries where legally you can't camp. So for example, the entire time we're in Cuba, um, it is illegal for a non-national to camp. You have to get a certain a certain visa document, and effectively, you can only stay in a very particular kind of color coded um, hostel or Airbnb. That's not what they call it. So you cannot camp. Oh, um, but yeah, as Lisa's saying, I mean, much of Thailand, um, especially in the north. Uh, I remember we went to this hotel once, beautiful hotel, air conditioned rooms. Yeah, we went to camp, didn't we? We, we actually yeah. said, "Hey, can we put our tent up on your lawn overlooking the river?" And they went, yeah, of course. You yeah. Can. How mu- yeah, I said, "How much is that?" She said, "Well, it's three dollars." I said, "Out of interest, how much is it for one of these beautiful stone rooms with a fan and a great view?" She said, "Oh, it's six. <laughs> so, okay, then. <laughs> so you didn't set up the tent. <laughs> no, we did not, not set up the tent. No, right. it's so humid and everything. It's, it's sometimes not a good idea. And then countries like India. I mean, we did camp when we were in India, but um, uh, often it's it is it's just a bit too much. You you need a, a room. You need to be able to shut the door and just block yourself. I mean, yeah. India is one of those countries that was spectacular, but at times overwhelming. Personal space. Um, yeah, personal space and the sheer enthusiasm of the people that you're meeting and they want to know where you're from and they want to know about the bikes. Um, at one point, we got so overwhelmed that we quite literally rode into the southern edge of the Great Tar Desert. Now, we're talking some pretty big sand dunes and we just rode until we got stuck. We took some firewood and we literally hid for three days just <laughs> because we needed some some personal space yes, just yeah. to wow. yeah. you know decompress a little bit before we launched ourselves back out again. But I think overall, I'd probably say 75, 80% of our time on the road collectively was in our, in our in tent. tent yeah. Well, any percentage after 17 years is a lot of camping. The other question I had for you was, so even when you're staying in, in accommodations, you're still hauling your camping gear then? Oh, yes. We yeah. always have our camping have kit with us, always. Right. Because because we were on the road in one trip, so it, w- it was always with us. There wasn't any going home and back and forwards. We, were, we, left, we left for a year and a half, and then we were just out there. Yeah. So um, the, the thing is, you've, you've got your, your, your methods and your, your systems for your camping gear all sorted out. That's what I'm really interested in. Let's start with the bikes themselves. Uh, now, how do you have them set up? Hard panniers, soft panniers? Do you use tank bags? How do you set that up? Um, hard panniers, um, mainly because when we first started off, there wasn't a lot of choice, um, and hard panniers were the way to go. And we stuck with them because we've never had any issues with them. Uh, we've, we've just, they've become part of the bikes. We've had opportunities to change, but we've not wanted to. Um, we have a tank bag and we have a roll bag on the back of the bike. Um, and generally that's what we like to stick with. Um, now and again, we'll carry a spare uh, tire, uh, usually the rear tire, um, and obviously inner tubes, etc. Um, a way to carry water on the back. Um, so there are water bags on top of the hard panniers, and that's it. We don't. I don't like any uh, bags hanging off the the tank on the front. Um, and, and nothing at all like neither that. Neither of us use neither of us use top boxes. A, I think they're 
unpleasant to look at, but the number of accidents I've seen where the, in, where the riders become genuinely hurt, especially on asphalt, because when the, when the bike hits the ground, the rider and the bike start turning and spinning at different speeds. And all you want is one gigantic whack from a spinning bike with a top box to crack you in the spine or the kidneys. And it ends up being pretty nasty. And we, we just haven't found it necessary. The more, the more space you have for stuff, the more stuff you'll end up carrying. With the two years riding bikes of your own, so you both have panniers on your bikes, that must make it a little bit easier to deal with the camping gear because it's really only one set of camping gear with the exception of the sleeping pad and, and sleeping bag. But otherwise, you know, your tents and everything, it's, it's sort of one. It, it, does that seem a little simpler yeah. than what you see people doing solo? Um, although you say that, it's, it's, everything else is, is, is doubled up. It's just the tent. And we, because we were on the, on the road for so long, our tent was our home. So we don't have a small, you know, single person tent, which can roll up really tiny. We have a decent sized tent, which is still quite tiny when it rolls up. Um, so it, all in all, it'll probably work out the same as each of you carrying a tent. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I think we ended up carrying a few little I- luxury items more than somebody who's really watching every single ounce and pound. Um, and again, if you're traveling for a few weeks or even a few months, I think you can do that. But the gear we were carrying, um, whether it was the camera gear, the the Dragonfly camping stove, the Hilleberg tent, um, the Thermos mattresses, we didn't always necessarily look at um, making sure they were the absolute lightest because these things were defining our standard of living. And I think if you if you cut every single corner, um, it's worthwhile for the for the weight saving in the short term. But as long-term travelers, you need that little bit of extra comfort now and again to just to just to get through. And we knew we were going to be heading off into uh, winter areas as well. Uh, we don't always chase the sun, although that's nice. Uh, but in winter areas, you need to make sure your tent can withstand any disgustingly horrible, vile weather that the world throws at you. Um, oh. It's the it, it's very important to have a tent that can withstand and also make your camping uh, pleasurable. I mean, the last thing you want is to be sleeping on top of wet jackets and trousers, trying to get to sleep all cramped up yeah. and you can't go anywhere because you've got a hurricane around you or it's, it's snowing and you can't make a move and you're, you're stuck there for three or four days and you're literally getting on each other's nerves. So what's the message? Um, don't skimp on gear. Don't skimp. On, on your tent, definitely do. Well, let me ask you, what's your criteria for your gear? What, what, what do, how do you choose that? Um, that's a tough one because the, the honest answer would be you choose it from, from learning from your mistakes. You know, you try something and you realize that it doesn't quite work out. The answer would be we, we, we made sure that we were heading off for two or three uh, journeys prior to our big leaving date, which was May 2003, make sure that the first time you use something isn't on the first few nights of your big, of your big journey. Right. Test, test, ride, yeah. test, test yeah. the stuff, keep the receipts. If something's not waterproof, if it hasn't worked out, if something's deflated, if it's got a hole in it, take it back and say, I'm sorry, this is not fit for purpose. And we did actually, um, pay out. Uh, we tried to get what at that point in 2003, were top-notch pieces of kit. It didn't go cheap. Um, and I think it was the best decision ever. In, 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 hi- in hindsight, yeah, yeah it, was the, it was the best decision. At the time, it was horrendously difficult <clears throat> because 
when you set before you set out, you know that every single dollar you spend on equipment is money you do not have to spend whilst you're traveling and and to put gas in the tank. So it is, it? It, is, it is it is it's a challenging but decision. It's worth to point out there is no sponsorship. This is just us paying out for absolutely everything. We we didn't start the trip going to sponsors and mm-hmm. say, Oh, we're gonna do this trip. Will well, you we could give us money. Um, social I mean, when we set out, social media didn't exist. Yeah, it wasn't um, the thing. It, it was just yeah. a journey that Lisa and I were embarking on. Um, a very personal journey for ourselves. And it has pretty much stayed that way. I mean, we now, we now share via social media, but the motivation to share and the reason for traveling is still very much because it's what makes us happy. Mm-hmm. So we spent out on, we did a lot of research on what was available and um, yeah. I think and, that put us in good stead. Yeah. And then went out and bought it. Talk about your, your camping gear and how you, how you pack it on your bike, how you deal with it. So we're very lucky because we do have four panniers um, and we've spoken with a lot of people over the years about everything has to have a place. What you cannot do is just start putting things back and forwards in willy-nilly locations because you very quickly end up losing where things are. You need to know where those things are in the dark so you can pack and unpack very quickly, not only for your peace of mind and because it makes the whole process that much bearable, but also should a security situation arise, you need to be able to pack up very, very quickly and get gone. So we have tank bags. Those tank bags hold some key documents and hold our camera gear. Uh, we work very hard to photograph our journey, and I've learned the hard way that if the camera gear um, is at the back of the bike packed up, um, you end up being tired and you just end up making excuses not to stop. You see something fantastic, and your brain says, oh, I must get a photograph of that. And then the lazy little boy in my head says, but that means I've got to stop the bike and turn the engine off and take off my gloves and put the side stand down and get off the bike and my hips hurt and my back hurts. I've got to undo the bag and, 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 and. Whereas if the tank bag is there, all I've got to do is unzip it, pull out, pull out the camera and start taking shots. Yeah. And if the shots end up being really well, at that point, I'm already then motivated to get off the bike and, and take can, it one you step can just further. just be on tiptoes on the side of a mountain. You don't need to be, you know, with side stand down. If you can balance and you think, oh, I, I just need to take a photograph right now, uh, you can still do that. You can even leave the engine running Um we had one pair of we have one pair of shoes. We have one change of clothes other than our bike gear. All of that gets put into a fifty liter roll bag okay. that got strapped to the back. Our panniers. One pannier just had a uh, laptop uh, gear, um, anything IT related and documents. Another pannier had uh, cooking gear, uh, gas stove, all the stuff that we consider the kitchen. Uh, you had another pannier that was just foodstuffs. And uh, the and the other one would be uh, tools and medication for uh, you. Um, we'd make sure the tools were fairly low down in one of the panniers, um, and um, we also had a, a, a tool roll which was easily accessible. But if we needed to stop and start to uh, uh, strip the bike, uh, those tools were low down in one of the panniers. And on the front, on the front of each pannier, we had one dark, unmarked, um, waterproof bag that held a medical pack. Again, we learned the hard way. Do not put the medical pack somewhere that you think is safe. Sounds like a very strange thing to say, but you're injured, you're trapped under the bike, you've got fuel pouring into your eyes because it's pouring into the goggles, and this did happen to Lisa. The last thing you need to be doing is crawling out from under the, underneath that bike in pain, scrabbling through bags. You want to make sure your, um, your first aid bag 
is the first thing you can you can get to. And it doesn't need to have a big red cross on it. Just put it in something unmarked. No one's going to steal it. No one's going to know. It just means that should you need it, you can get to it quickly. Mm, that's a that's a very good point. Okay, so when it, when you come into camp, talk about your routine. How, how does that work, including taking your stuff out? Like, do you have one bag that I you grab? I just do as I'm told. Yeah, I, I tell Simon what to do, uh, how to breathe in and out. Um, yeah, I know I'm a bit bossy when it when it comes to camping. Uh, we'll, but it works. We'll, we'll pull up into an area. A- anyway, it can be it can be a proper campsite. Uh, or it can be just the, the rough stuff, which is what we like. And we'll just choose in areas we're going along. Um, we kind of go, all right, this looks about right. We'll pull up the bikes and we'll walk it. We'll just see, okay, any ants' nests, they're the worst. Um, any animal tracks, are we going to be right in the I can way? Feel, I can feel a theme because I want to say we've learned the hard way. Yeah, I think I'm going to be saying that yeah. quite a lot during this chat. Um, and then obviously if, if we pulled off a track, how far away from the track can you actually see us if we set up a camp here? Um, is it behind a bush? Is it over, over a small Are mound? we disturbing anybody else? Disturbing. Is anyone going to yeah. disturb us? But I was just thinking about this answer and there isn't, there isn't a one size fits all answer because depending on the country or the terrain we were camping in, things would change. So if it's somewhere pretty straightforward, North America is a great example. Um, we'd pull over, find somewhere flank, get off the bikes. The very first thing we do is set up the tent. Um, when that's, when that's set up, um, I begin to check over the bikes. I begin to pull out the stuff to look at the bikes and pull out the cooking stuff. As I'm doing that, Lisa's inside pulling bags into the tent, setting up the mattresses, setting up the sleeping bags, uh, blowing up the pillows and the bits and pieces. When that's done, we both come outside and generally speaking, we'll then start to write up the diary. As I'm doing that, Lisa's generally prepping food. Once we've eaten, my job is to tidy everything else away. And then during all of that, we're just talking about the day um, and what's happened and what's what we've seen that's amazing. Deciding the next day. But in Africa, um, that wasn't the case. All those same things happened, but in a different order. So what we would do is we would turn up and we would, tr- we would try, especially Central Africa, we would try to make uh, sure that we are not camped near a vi- village or on the periphery of a village um, for no other reason than, you know, you think you're alone anywhere in the world. I guarantee you are not alone as you think you are. <laughs> we'd pull over, we'd stop, you know, we'd, we'd get up, we'd, we'd do what I've just explained, only to find that within half an hour, you've got, you know, 30 or 40 very well-intended people just camped, staring and poking things and prodding things. Again, one, it's a, it's a wonderful encounter. Um, but sometimes but after, you don't need it. You know, after a 14-hour day, um, uh, it, it can, you know, where you want to have these wonderful interactions and you want to make sure that they've got your full attention and vice versa. So we would actually roll up and we would actually sort our food out first. Uh, we've got a way of cooking on the back of the bikes. Uh, and if no one's rocked up in the first hour, hour and a half uh, and watched us eat, then we would think, okay, well, chances are no one's seen us here. Let's get the tent up. Let's get ready for the evening. It's very, oh, easy. That's it's very easy to just sit and eat. And if you have visitors, then there's no tent out. You could just pack everything away and move on. Right. And if, yeah. they're, nice, and if they're nice visitors, you welcome them in, you yeah. offer them some food and you have a lovely conversation. But that is very different to having an entire village or two villages literally squat on their haunches, 
circling you, watching yeah. you do absolutely everything that as humans we do. Also with with cooking, uh, first in, in countries like this, uh, well, continents like that, uh, you can then be um, aware of any animals that might be coming to visit as well. So you might be in an area where you go, this is not going to be a good idea to, to stay the night here, mm. but I can eat and then we can move on to somewhere a bit safer. And typically... I like Alaska, Canada, but also most of Africa, we would make sure that we were a couple of hundred feet away when we were cooking food and eating it. Yeah, from your, from the tent, you mean? Yeah. 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 It was fascinating. We were having a conversation a couple of days ago with somebody who is going to Alaska and we were talking about the importance of using the bear box. And uh, they were saying, yeah, but it's, it's kind of a gimmick. It's not real. We went, no, no, it's, it's definitely real. And put every, all of your food in there and make sure you put your wash banks, any, any, any toiletries in there as well. And they went, that, that makes no sense. Why? As we explained, as far as the bear is concerned, it's not looking to attack you. It's just looking to get a meal. But it, it can't differentiate between what is food and what is, say, well, I don't know, uh, a hair product or toothpaste. I mean, all the things we wash ourselves in are designed to smell nice. They smell nice to a bear. They smell nice to a bear too. So once we pointed out that, yeah, toiletries or anything else that smells nice, throw in the bear box as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very important for sure. Okay. So, um, now as, as far as camping tips, did you, did you guys come up with some camping tips that you, things that you've learned from the, well, especially you're saying, you know, from hard knocks and which, which is true, really, that's how we learn. And that's the whole point of this is to learn things from people like you who've done it so many times that you've, you've got these things down pat. So did you guys come up with some tips that you can pass on? I like the wet wipes oh, one. We did. Well, yes. Um, when we first started, I don't think wet wipes were available, were they? They weren't a thing. And, uh, they weren't a thing. And then wet wipes became um, available. And I think they're absolutely amazing. But they're really difficult them. to get rid of. But you don't just use them to wash yourself with, or wash your hands, or even wipe out one of your cooking pans. You can use them afterwards as well after they've been used so lisa and i lisa and i make sure uh, one of the things we always carry with us is vaseline and that sounds kind of silly vaseline is a great lubricant for bike parts when you're putting things back together again okay it's not there to make sure the bike runs but when you're trying to work with an item and you just need some kind of lubricant and you don't have wd-40 because you're in the middle of nowhere vaseline works well also cuts and abrasions um if, if you if you if you run out of plasters just cover it in Vaseline until you can start cleaning out and dealing with it. But what that meant is that with wet wipes, we would use in the evening when we get into the tent just to take all the, the road muck and the grease off your face, um, especially again in developing countries, uh, diesel fumes. Um, I mean, it, it, it's black. So we would take those off. Um, and it's actually, it can be very challenging to burn these. So what we did was we would mix up a bit of, bit of Vaseline in a jar we'd throw in um, a little bit of petrol from the bikes. We'd mix it, and that would stay mixed for about a week. Um, the Vaseline holds the petrol so it doesn't evaporate, and we would literally just dip, dip in the wet wipes, and that's what we would use every single evening to start our fire. Oh, that's interesting. And nowadays you can get, uh, I know you were saying they, were, they weren't available. I think they were always, they've been available for many years as baby wipes. And then somewhere yeah. along the lines, they, they became uh, wet wipes. And then they dropped a lot of the perfumes and things like that that yes. made them more suitable for doing this type of thing. And, and I agree. I mean, I think, I think they're great because you can keep them a small package. And, and actually, yeah. we were talking about this on Raw not long ago. And, I, and Michelle said that um, you can re-moisturize them because, you know, they dry out sometimes when you leave them sit. 
She says you can just add some water to them. Yes. And they seem to work very well. Yeah, so, done that. so so sometimes sometimes we deliberately so if if, if they they've not gone dry, um, when we use them, when we dry them out, and you can reuse them. Uh, I sometimes use them to I say wipe out pans, etc. Um, degrease, degrease cooking, cooking stuff. Yep. So mm-hmm. they, they can be reused, as, as Simon has said, and dry them out. Um, but if you bury them in the ground, as lots of people do, there is quite a high plastic content in a lot of the brands yeah. as well as paper. They'll be there for 50 years. Yeah. And you that's can't why, that's a- why. No. no. So yeah, that's there, why. There's biodegradable ones now that you can get. And, yeah. and, and that would be the thing to look for. Is about and even those ones. ones are not that biodegradable. They still take many, and they many, still take many years. years. And even if you flush them down the toilet, yeah, even the flushable ones, I don't recommend. Yeah, they're flushing. saying don't flush it. I mean, and, yeah. and it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's a pretty yeah. tough little rag you're throwing down the, yeah. the yeah. into some pipes. So we do try to burn them. So if we're oh, cooking on an open fire, which we do a lot of the time, uh, or say we've been to the toilet and we've dug our little hole, uh, we will use a wet wipe and we will set fire to it will burn it mm. do you remember the first time you ever saw me wash up without water <laughs> well yeah i mean washing up without water is something that you must be able to do um, and people say well, how do you carry the the washing up liquid and i said i don't use washing up liquid because you might not have enough water to rinse away that horrible filmy thing that comes with Actually, the detergent. And if you don't wash it off regularly enough and you're consuming it over the course of a week or two, you can end up being pretty ill because your body has a hard time basically digesting yeah, so the residue use, of washing detergent yeah. on your plates. We never yeah. use washing detergent. So we just detergent. use water um, and often I would use sand. Sand's great. And as and when it stops sticking to the plate or the pan, it's because there's no longer any moisture or anything greasy on the, on the surface and it'll just fall off. Mm-hmm. And then give it a quick wipe down, you're good to go. It's absolutely And these days I, I always try to carry a little essential oil as well. So a little lemon essential oil is fantastic. Tiny weeny little bottle, it lasts forever. Yes. And um, it, it won't evaporate or anything. And so I always have that, use it to clean my hands as well. So it's always available in my tank bag. I have a question for you. What? We've just, we've just spent a little while. So we've, Lisa and I have just come back from an event in Plymouth that was focused on adventure travel. So a lot of these questions are very fresh in our minds. Hmm. We answered a lot of questions about what kind of stove to take because people yeah. were saying, um, well, I did a cooking demo. Should, you know, yeah. where, where do you find the gas canisters? And we said, you don't. Again, if you're going to a country where you've got an inbuilt infrastructure of tourism, chances are you can find them. But for our entire time on the road and still now going forwards, uh, we use a multi-fuel stove that you, you can put anything in there, whether it's vodka, jet fuel, diesel, petrol. No, you, you see, you if, pressurize you vodka, it. if you had vodka, you wouldn't bother cooking. You'd just drink. But how important is it for you to think right at the top of that, that question, how important is choosing the correct stove for you? Oh, it's, it's, it's paramount. It's one of the top ones, I would say. So you've, for you've me, it, it would right. be, yeah, it would be uh, your tent, mm-hmm. your sleeping bag, your mat, your stove. That's a good question. You've never answered it so that's, succinctly. That's, that's, that's what that's I would say. List. You've got to have a nice tent. Keep yourself dry. It's not going to fall on you when the wind gets. If you're up. not sleeping well, your journey yeah. is going to be miserable. You've got very to be able quickly. to be warm. That's a really good point. Yep. Yep. Definitely. So be warm. If you're too warm, or you can just get out of your sleeping bag. And if you're hungry um, or you're eating noodles and tuna every single day and soup, 
Yeah. Chances are your journey is going to end up being either very lackluster or very, very, very yeah. expensive. And of course, there was there was a discussion the other day actually about um, I was I was looking at a discussion online the other day, and they were saying about uh, one guy was asking exactly this: what's what stove should I carry? So many people came back and went, don't bother, mate, don't bother. You just need to get out and experience the country and enjoy their food. And that's true. In countries like Thailand. You do. Like, don't bother cooking your own food. Just go out and eat. That's what they were saying. That's what they were saying. Don't bother, don't bother. But I'm thinking, well, that's that's a bit weird advice. I agree. Great for a week holiday. Get get out and enjoy the country. Um, But what if you are nowhere well, you're always somewhere, but nowhere where there is any uh, people. Well, there's no food. Well, even, there's nothing to stop. Even for. somewhere like Alaska, driving up to the whole road up to Prudhoe Bay. I mean, this is not. It, it's it's a spectacular part of the world. It can feel very remote, but it's not as remote as you think. Every three or four hundred, you know, uh, miles, you've got something that you can buy fuel or, or food. Mm-hmm. Right up until someone at that location gets ill. And suddenly and there's close. no shop and there's no restaurant and there's no fuel. Just carry something. They take up no space just so that you can be truly independent. You go hungry for two or three days. But it's not a lot of fun. You also, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. You're aiming to get from point A to point B where you know there's going to be maybe a small shop or somewhere where you can camp and pick up some, you know, a meal. Um, and then you break down and yeah. you are left stranded. In the middle of but nowhere. Is this, well, okay, you're saying multi-fuel stove, though. It's a multi-fuel stove. You, you're kind of limited in choice, really. I know MSR is, it makes their multi-fuel stoves, but they're basically stoves that, that have different jets for different types of fuel. Yeah, but Pr- Primus and two or three other brands do them, and they've been around for ever and a day, and the technology is super simple. You take a small canister, you fill it up with your chosen chosen fuel, you pressurize it, Um we ended up using, this is going to sound like a great plug, we ended up using, yeah, the Dragonfly. Um, the biggest the biggest thing to look out for with any of these stoves, though, is do not get the uh, the really expensive mountaineering one. Um, it, unless you're going mountaineering, unless you're going to spend a, a lot of time above 10,000 feet. Um, obviously, there's less oxygen. It's harder to light things. Stoves don't burn as hot. So these stoves are designed to basically be on or off. Whereas with a stove that you have some kind of dial, so once the fuel is pressurized, you turn it on, you prime it, you get it going, to then have some kind of lever that allows you to either turn down or turn up the flame, that's what you need to be looking for. If you don't have that, then basically all you can do is make it hot and cold. You can mm-hmm. heat something up really, really quickly and probably burn it, or, or it's off. Um, a, a few friends I've spoken to have gone out and they've spent the extra money thinking, well, I get the mountaineering one, this is the one to have, it's the most expensive and they actually, can't cook with it. You, you need to be it. able to have a variable temperature to be able to actually cook something as opposed to just boiling water or just having one of these reconstituted reconstituted packets. Um, and, those pack- and those packets, again, are great. But, but if you're thinking about eating twice a day, because you know, most people aren't thinking about three times a day, you know, you're not at school, um, but something in the morning or just one packet of reconstituted food, you know, meal in the bag in the evening, those all take up space, and even though they're dry um, and powdered, they all take up a good amount of space. And maybe you can carry a week's worth on your bike, but any more than that, it's easier and to ca- to carry yeah. just a few key ingredients, and then just pick up the local up, ingredients as have fresh as you go stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, what other kind of tips? 
Oh, here's a great one for you. Um, invest in uh, a good sleeping bag, but more importantly, believe it or not, a sleeping bag liner. Yes. Um, Actually, this again is is, is very strange. <coughs> so we, we've paid out for a very, very good tent and we do use a Hilliburg tent. I am going to plug it because we have never used a different tent in all our time on the road. It's always the same. And it's never let us never down. Never let us never down. Never let water in. It's never blown over. there's a whole load of different things that you can use with your sleeping bags, a whole variety. But we've been using a sleeping bag liner, a silk liner, and we've used one for the last 20 years, but 17 on the road. And we slipped into this silk liner the other night at the event we were at. And I looked at it and I went, this is the same liner, silk liner, that we have used since, since 2004. 2004. Is that right? Wow. It's exactly the same. Bearing in mind that the, the reason silk, the reason liners are great is, is, is numerous. First of all, you go into a real, real hot country, really humid. You don't want a sleeping bag. You want to put something over you. Um, you don't necessarily want to sleep directly on top of your mattress. They can be a bit grippy, rash. They're, they're not designed to be slept on. But from a hygiene standpoint, Again, you're in, um, you're in countries where you've got some warmth, some humidity. You, pers- you perspire in the evening. Every other day, take your liner, throw it into the shower with you, whether that's an outdoor shower, uh, lent, lent, river, lent against your four by four or bike or the river or the motel or the hostel you're in. Throw it into the shower with you. Give it a scrub with the shampoo. It's dry in literally 30 minutes. Um, because it's a darn sight easier to do that than to try and wash your big, expensive, fluffy um, sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. So from a comfort and a hygiene, it's a no-brainer. It's super simple. They're not expensive and they will last decades. When you're suffering from heat exhaustion and you need to be cooled down quickly, you can take it you into the husband. shower and have it with cold water and cover yourself with it. Wrap yourself that up happened in, in, it, Mali, didn't in the tent to keep you cool, to take your temperature down. Oh. Lisa had heat. Lisa had heat stroke in Mali. Yeah, well, I've had heat stroke a few times, but Mali. And I would was just terrible. and I would just soak it in cold water, and she was inside the tent with the vents open, and I would just lay it on top of her and cool me down. It would cool her down. Yeah, yeah mm. I've forgotten that. Mm. Yeah, no, interesting and, and extremely durable. Well, there's another one of the things that you spent the money on in 2004, and it's still good to this day. Yeah, so, um, yeah. money well spent. Absolutely. I've got a question for you. What? Should people take knives and forks, you know, something that's lightweight and easy, or do you think using those sporks, you know, oh, you've got... Bloody hate a spork. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I come agree. on. You're, you're trying to, I'm trying <laughs> to save weight. Well, why don't you go on a fitness plan before yeah, you leave? Cut your hair. And you'll, yeah. cut, cut your hair. Cut your hair. Weight, take a full spoon. <laughs> yeah, the weight the weight saving benefits of carrying something that's a knife, a fork, and a spoon in one go is so minimal as just to be laughable. Yeah, yeah, but people like, spend this stuff. I, mean, I, I remember in the last time we were in the states, we were in a fancy place, and I was looking at one of these, and it was titanium, and this this spork thing was like twenty nine dollars. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm old fashioned and I like having a knife. I don't take a separate knife. I use the knife that I cook with. So, um, it's a nice little throwing knife actually. Um, and, uh, so I use that to chop my vegetables and I use it to eat with, um, but, um, a nice fork. 
a decent size fork. Okay, okay. Changing subject, camping. Camping, something I wish we'd known at the beginning and we didn't. Um, if you know that you're going to go through a number of different countries or even one country with varied terrain, take different tent pegs. Um, the nice little pegs that normally come um, in your tent bag aren't going to be much good if you're camped on the Salada Uni, the world's largest salt desert, because it's concrete. You're going to need spikes. So I would take tent pegs, and you don't need lots. Tent pegs that come with the tent. Take a number of what they call they call spikes or nails. Take sand pegs. Um, and try and take some sand pegs if you are going anywhere that's going to be sandy. Um, if you don't have those, here's a great tip that I have tried and it does work. Take a whole slew of just uh, cheap plastic carrier bags. Normally, again, Africa, they're blowing around all over the place, which is a very sad thing to say. Um, you fill those up with sand and you generally pee on those or you make it wet. You dig a hole, you put your guy line to that, to that plastic bag that's now full oh, of heavy, wet sand. You dig a hole. Um, and that will actually hold your tent down. You Very can terrible. also hold your, um, use your motorbike as well as an to, anchor point. As an anchor point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a tunnel tent, so we don't have a geodesic tent which will stand up on its own. Uh, it's a tunnel tent, uh, absolutely fantastic. In so it high needs winds, to be pinned, but it does uh, need at to either be pinned. end. Only three pegs on each end, um, and then we can tie the guy rope. Have a bike on each end yeah. and, and, and tie the guy rope to each bike. Oh, and Jim, it always looks absolutely fantastically cool in the movies. But trust me, don't buy a hammock and try to put it up between the two bikes. <laughs> That's funny because a hammock is my main thing, has been for many years. And I oh, have, my, I and I have used my motorcycle. So the trick is, though, you can't just use the bike, obviously. The bike needs to be tied down. So in my yes. situation where I've used it, uh, this one in particular I'm thinking of on the side of a lake, there's one tree, there's the bike, and there's a bunch of rocks. So I use multiple ropes going down to the rocks to hold the bike and then the hammock between. It's not the greatest setup. But when it's all you've got for the night, and so that It'll time where you... you so you know, just to be clear, not two bikes that are not tied down and on the handlebars. Okay, we should have known that. <laughs> top, top tip. Definitely. We've never done that, but we have watched somebody with great amusement. We have watched people do that. And it wasn't the big person, but the side yeah. sands just pulled into the sand. The bikes fell over, both of them. Oh, Jesus, it'd be horrible. <laughs> it's, and hopefully it's far enough away that it, that it didn't catch the, the sleeper. Uh, on that, but um, you can set up a hammock on the ground as well. You, if you get you know creative with some ropes, yeah. you can run a rope yeah. across and, and string the, ham- the hammock top up a little bit. But. We love hammocks, actually. We do carry a hammock. Um, it was one of the um, little fold-up hammocks. Um, we would also be able to use it as a uh, pull it out into a shade. So we could sit underneath it, not use it as a hammock. No, and good. we could also use it as a very light um, top on the ground. So our hammocks had three purposes. After our after our Amazon um, situation, when we were trying to leave the jungle, yeah, whenever we would try and stop, which wasn't that frequently because we were in pretty poor shape, we would, jokes aside, just put the hammock out. Um, it was one of these hammocks. It was it, if you can imagine the tarp, and then at either end you have a drawstring. So it wasn't it wasn't a mesh. It wasn't it wasn't lots of ropes. Um, it was like a giant drawstring at either end of a tarp. So it made a great hammock. We ended up strapping it between the bikes and using it as a, as a, as a sunshade uh-huh. just to get some respite from the sun. That yeah. worked brilliantly. So what else do we have? Lisa does genuinely have a fold-up um, kitchen sink. I laughed at her. I'm like, oh, come on. We've, we've, for 10 years, it's been fine. 
and you want one of these now, it's unnecessary. Oh, yeah, this wasn't the start of the trip. This no. was uh, this was much, much later, and I saw this, and I said, I want it. Okay, um, but be honest, has it been used more frequently as a method of putting water in to wash up, or have I used it more for collecting oil from servicing the bikes on the road? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And our marriage uh, survived. Uh, she was not best pleased, yeah. but... Yeah. Um, oh, I like having the uh, uh, water filtration system. We've tried a variety of things over the years. Um, and we, we've tried the pumps, the proper pumps. We've tried the tablets, absolutely everything. Now what we like to use are the... Um, charcoal, the charcoal gravity-fed fil filters. Yeah. Mm. And it, it goes straight into, it connects straight into one of the dromedary bags. So you can hang it up on the handlebars of your bike and put the bag on the floor and it'll filter into that. Or within five minutes, tree. within five minutes, it'll produce seven liters. Yeah. yeah. And five those, those wow. we found are the best. Yeah. yeah. Do try, try if you can, especially if you're going to go somewhere hot, try if you can to avoid the hand pumps. They're typically a lot smaller, but what we worked out in the Amazon was that we just weren't using it because the water was very, very dirty. The pump did an absolutely fantastic job, but the amount of perspiration and the amount of fluid that we were losing through the exertion of yeah. having to pump for five to 10 minutes was actually equal to or greater than the level of water we were going to be able to consume afterwards. Right. So with the gravity, you can just hang it up and then you can just lie down yeah. and rest. And carry two. And it's a good enough or big enough filter that it doesn't clog quickly, the gravity style? Um, again, they didn't used to be, but the technology now is getting so yeah. is getting so good that you can pour water into a bag, and, and we we just called them the water bags. I think they were actually called the MSR drometry bags. Drometry bags yeah. I'm sure somebody will criticize if that's wrong. Um, and there is a special attachment that you can. So it's obviously it's a sealed bag, um, and there was a lid on it, and that would connect to a special tube that would go to the water filter. Mm. But it meant that from the moment you put the water in the bag to be filtered, um, it didn't then get contaminated by air or by dirt or by anything else. It went straight into a purpose-built collection point and would then be absolutely fantastic. And then once every few weeks, we would throw a, uh, a baking soda or some kind of um, normally purpose-designed um, chlorine uh, tablet into it just to wash those bags out because we were putting lots of different kinds of water in there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, every, once a month at least, just make sure you give those bags a good clean out. That's the collection bags. And we would we would literally just have those on top of our metal panniers as and when needed. I like carrying um, the, what do you call them, the barbecue sticks. Skewers? Not necessarily skewers. Like Thank you very much. Yes. And I don't have the, the, the wooden ones because um, I'd always break those in my bag. So I have That's the, not the reason you didn't have them. You burnt them all. You would try to cook prawns yeah, on yeah, the Mexico on the fire. Yeah, I set fire to them all and they went to yeah. fire and then they burnt the prawns and I went So no. top, top tip here, take some water, take some lime juice, stick the wooden skewers in the water and lime juice, then, then skewer the prawns. Yeah. And then, so the lime but, juice and the water stops the, the skewers burning and it infuses the if prawns. If you have the metal ones. See, I watched you. Then you, you watched. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Uh, if you have the metal ones, you can use them obviously for, you know, sticking in your fish and uh, barbecuing them or with your vegetables, etc. Um, You can also use them to pick up uh, meat off the fire. So as a poke and lift 
so you don't actually need to use it during the cooking, but for moving some meat, etc., or and stick for a potato on them. over your butternuts, your butternuts yep. in tinfoil. Yeah. And again, they're tiny, they're small, they weigh nothing, and you can put them anywhere in your pannier. They take up no space. And I usually and wrap, you can cook on a fire. I usually wrap the pointy bit, and uh, it's because you don't want that going through anything or going through your pannier bag, mm-hmm. etc. How long are these things, Lisa? Oh, um, they're probably the length of a standard pannier, because um, that's how they used to fit in right, so beautifully they're... down the side of a pannier. Yeah, yeah, the long side of a pannier. Yeah. What, what else do you have? What other tips? <laughs> What are the tips? Um, We have a tiny little foldable shovel. And when we first got them, when we first left, actually, we had them on our test run as well. Uh, And I was less than convinced. You were less than convinced. We have used them for all sorts of things, not just for digging holes when you need to um, do your ablutions somewhere off the side of the road or by your campsite. But there are a lot of times you want to dig into the ground, whether you're camping, burying something, trying to, trying to, trying to recover an item that you've lost from the bike because it's dropped into the ground and you, you can't find it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just don't want to use your hands. Um, rock. We've done it where it's been absolutely flooding in yeah. an area and we've tried to dig out so a to, trench. to divert the water from just engulfing our tent. And so we've been both out there with our little shovels, uh, digging a, a little dam and a new route for the river, etc. that suddenly decided to come you down can, the mountain. In the States in particular, you can buy these things. They're normally they're normally pretty inexpensive. You can go to military surplus stores and you can find these things for three, yeah. four, five bucks. Or are you talking about the ones with a big, like a handle on them? They'll unfold it like 24 inches or something? Yes. Is that size? Oh, yeah. okay. I thought you were talking about well, a tiny no, one. You, no, no, no. We're, we're talking about ones. They're, li- I mean, they're literally half the size of your open hand. And then there's a small handle that fits down into that if they fold down. Okay, so there's something um, like the size that you would be scooping out like goods with, maybe at a bulk store or something like that. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that yeah. that that yeah. kind of size. Um, but again, they're very small, very, very inexpensive. And it's one of those odd things that you think, you know what, I've used that way more than I imagined I, I ever would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, again, there's no weight, there's no size to it. Mm-hmm. Um, not something that I would recommend somebody has to carry if they're traveling for, you know, a week or two. But if you're looking at a trip that might last a month longer where you're going to be wild camping and, and totally self-sufficient. Yeah. It's one, of the, it's one of those things that you might very well be very grateful. You just mm-hmm. uh, tucked away somewhere. Okay. You also said about keeping things dry. That was your one. Yeah, keeping things dry. Here's a top tip for metal people who use metal panniers. Um, we tried to get little hoods that went over the pannier lid and then some way down um, the pannier with the drawstring because once you've fallen off your bike, you know, half a dozen times, which I do, the seal between the lid and the pannier, whoever makes it, isn't always great. Um, and the best solution we found was, uh, I think we were in South America, and we found a selection of go-kart inner tubes. Um, and then in America, we find the same thing again. They were inner tubes for wheelbarrows and we literally sliced them up. So cut around the circumference, um, opened it up, Open took, up. Off, took off the air valve and literally just used it sitting between the lid and the pannier body. Uh, it was, it's nice. It's grippy. Um, it fits. It's tiny. It's, you can throw it away and they, typically lasted us several years at a time. 
So you stretch this over top of, like you take the lid off the pannier, stretch it over the top of the pannier and then sort of let it get caught so, between the lids. So put, so put the pannier on, put the pannier on, yeah. put the pannier lid on rather, and then literally just stretch this over the entire pannier. Oh, so it's now, it's now sitting. It's now over the lid top it's now, yeah. and the bottom. And it's just. Not the, not the total lid. It's not covering the total lid. It's just covering the, around the sides where the lid meets the pannier body where that seam is. Right. It'd be like taking a big piece of duct tape sort of thing and wrapping it around the seal yeah. to try and seal it off. Yeah. 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 I see. And, it, and it, it just stops water going in because you're, you're know, driving on the highways at 60, 70 and, and, miles an hour and the, and the wind and the, and the pressure just pushes the water in. This just stops. Super inexpensive, disposable, easy. Yeah. Very good workout in the morning to put it on. <laughs> Quite easy. Yeah. That, that's a very good tip because, yeah, you hear that uh, a lot. Once the panniers are dented, it's pretty difficult to get them to seal. Yeah. Great. Okay. So that's what else? What about security? Um, there are a number of manufacturers, and I, nothing, nothing comes to mind, uh, but a number of these guys now make security nets for bags. So we had two of these. Each was 50 liters. And it, it, the best way of describing them, I can't remember who made ours. Um, the best way to describe it is it looks like a stainless steel um, fishing net. Fishing net. Yeah. It's only open at one end. It has a long pack draw. Safe. Pack safe. Make it. Safe. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so if we were in, if we were in a town or a city, somewhere where somebody could be walking past the bikes, go, you know what? I'm not sure what's in there, but I'm going to cut those two straps and run, run off of the bag. I mean, we didn't put anything valuable in there, but they didn't know that. Um, but yeah, we would, we would put our, uh, soft bags into those and we would just roll those onto the back of the bikes. But also if we were wild camping in a country that felt remote, again, a prime example, Yukon, Canada, Alaska, um, and we knew that we were going to leave the tent for a few days. Well, we would take our, we would take any belongings, we would put them into the net. We would put the net inside the awning of the tent. And then we would run the security cable out to one of the bikes. Mm. So A, it can't can be seen. We can go off for a day or two and know full well that the only people that are going to be able to get into that are those people that are walking around with a pair of bolt cutters. Yeah. And, and the thing well, is, yeah, all, they've got to be prepared for that. So what you're going to find yeah. is likely the idea is somebody's going to come along, look at it and think, darn, if I had a pair of bolt cutters, I could do it. Yeah. But otherwise it's, it's not opportunistic. Yeah, as, tra yeah, as travelers, most of, the, most of the stuff that goes missing is not because somebody, you're not, you're not a victim of a criminal, criminal gang. Most, most of the time, when little bits and pieces go, go missing, it's just opportunistic. So if you can give yeah. them a reason to be opportunistic somewhere else. That's, they're also very, very useful for when you're staying in hostels. And there's a lot of, uh, obviously, there's a lot of movement in and out of hospitals. You're being very polite. Well done. And uh, <laughs> and you, you can't always guarantee who's going to be your neighbour. Um, and so you can just use that, just just tie it up to one of the, 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 the beds or if it's in, if you're in a room or something like that, tie it to each other and tie it to something else. And they, but also, I think we were surprised, they fold, they fold down into themselves. Really they all, tiny. they all come with a little, uh, a little bag. I mean, we would go, we would go several months at a time without using it. And it would just sit in its own little bag strapped to the outside of the pannier, taking up no space whatsoever. Mm. But the peace of mind it gave. Yeah. Um, yeah well, I think I think it always surprised us and we walked away. That's a great little tip. That that is a really good tip. And 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 I like that because you can squish that down into the size of your hand. I mean, like you said, it's very yeah. very small. And and I've heard many times where people have said the only thing they've lost was actually staying in a hostel. 
So um, I guess it's just set up, you know, in a way that uh, makes it easy for someone to scoop something. I don't know. But but what yeah. a great thing to have just for that little backup. Like you said, it sits there all the time. If you you walk away from your bike, that's enough to... It's stainless steel. It doesn't, doesn't go rusty. Yeah. It sits in its own little bag. And they come in black too. I've seen them in black as well. So if you don't want the, yeah. the chrome or the, the stainless steel look, you can get them with that black yeah. coating on it, black paint. Wow, great tip. Yeah, that's good. Um, for motorcycle travelers, top tip of the day, do not put your helmet on the ground when you camp. I've seen a lot of people, they put the, uh, the chin buckle um, typically through the foot peg and then just put it on the ground. The number of times I've seen uh, dogs, typically stray dogs, walk along at campsites and just cock their legs on helmets. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and I, it's always perplexed me. So to put it on the ground, to turn your helmet upside down, to buckle the chin guard through the foot through the foot peg, all takes time and effort. Why wouldn't you just put it on your handlebars? Yeah, I don't get that either. I've never got it. I've never well, considered also, putting it on a foot peg. I know you can have these little helmet locks in the kind of halfway up the bike, aren't they? Well, that's okay as long as a big dog doesn't come along. Who can pee halfway Ooh. up your bike? Oh, you're talking about the, the factory one where that's underneath the yes. seat? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't like using that either. Yeah, I've I got agree. a good one. So, Carry on. What's your for favorite? lighting the camp stove, we've we tried loads of different ways of lighting a camp stove. Mm. What did we end up choosing? I don't know which one you're talking about. Do you about? remember? Uh-huh. So, we started off with just, you know, just matches. Well, trust me, end of a long day, you're dehydrated, there's a bit of breeze. When you've gone through 20 matches and you still haven't got the light, that matches are out. Mm-hmm. So then you get those big disposable lighters. Well, the problem is they also blow out really, really easily. You end up burning easily. your fingers. Yeah. And then well, you get so for a few seconds, they become yeah. a hot thing that burns your fingers. Yeah. Yeah. So, then, so then a very good friend or relative says, hey, I've seen this really expensive, high, high-spec military thing. You pump it full of pressurized butane gas and it's like a mini blowtorch and you use that a few times and you think oh my god this is camping nirvana you know because it does the wind doesn't matter it lights it looks cool people people can see you using it they think you're jason Bourne, and then you realize it's redundant because you you can't carry and you can't find this the butane gas we ended up going back to the simplest and cheapest zippo lighter yeah Oh, okay. I love my Zippo lighter. Yes. I, I'm right there with you. I've advocated for Zippos for years. I think there's so many advantages. One, you can light it and stand it there and it heats something up if you need to, to make a repair or anything. Yep. And you can close it and there's nothing hot there. You shove it right in your pocket. Yeah. It doesn't yep. burn into your yeah. leg. And I love the sound of it too. It oh, reminds yeah. me of my father. The way it lights. He used to have one. <laughs> and no, just just the whole the click. And then when you close the lid, yeah. it's got that particular sound and you know it's a Zippo. There you go. Oh, sound effects as well with Jim Martin. That's I, I, awesome. I carry it in my pocket all the time. I have for many, many, many years, probably 30 years. Are you one of those guys that can do that cool one-handed flicky open thing? No, no, Simon, I'm not cool. I just happen to have the thing with next, me. Just next like, time you meet, I'll, sh- I'll show you. Okay, you're, so you are cool is what you're saying. You're one of those guys. No, I'm not cool. I just practiced a lot because I wanted to be able to do it. And all, all my friends could do it. And my friends at school smoked and I never did. So I didn't, I didn't get to practice. Right. Well, say with me. I, I've never used it for smoke. It's always for outdoor stuff, but I use it for cutting yeah. ropes and, and burning the ends of ropes. Oh, I mean, so many things. But the other thing with it too, is you can manage your fuel. You mentioned about the butane. If you've ever put yeah. a butane can in a, in a pack, you know how easy it is to break the cap off and have all the butane leaked out when you go to pull it out. Whereas with yeah. the lighter fluid, you've got a container of it there. You know exactly how much yeah. you've yeah. got, how much you've used. 
Uh, yeah. I also, think... also when you're shipping a motorcycle, it is the easiest thing in the world to get so familiar with all of your gear and you're packing it all up and you're thinking everything's fine, only to realize that you've got a massive hold up at customs because they've stopped the, they've stopped the plane, especially if you're flying, because um, that's where planes go. I run stars, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> and you've realized that they've actually found a pressurized butane oh. container that won't ter- that won't be terribly happy up at thirty five thousand feet. Right. And your bike is still sat back at the dock because. They haven't just pulled the package out. They've stopped your entire container from leaving. Oh, right. No, that's something to uh, keep in mind. Yep. Yeah, Zippo should use that as a marketing tool. Absolutely. Zippo and, should now sponsor us. Yes, yeah, <laughs> Zippo's been around forever, and it's you know it's never changed. It's the same thing. I mean, you could pull one of those the the insides out of an old Zippo and, and put it in a new yeah, case. It's the works. exact same yeah. thing. Yeah. It's good enough for James Dean. Good enough for us, buddy. Yep. Absolutely. Even if you're not cool enough what to else? flick it with the one hand. Even if you're not cool enough. But we know, we know you are. Right. What, okay. What, what else what you got? Other, that was a great one. What else we got? <laughs> Zippos. Lisa's looking at me with her thinking face on. I am. We've gone through quite a lot, haven't we? Definitely. So, um, I'm just trying to have to think about it. Lisa, maybe I can prompt you with one. Because I know you're into cooking. You guys did a cooking book, as a matter of fact, showing people how to make amazing food when they're riding their motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is, that, is that book still available? Um, we do actually have copies, but we don't have them available online at the moment. Uh, we're trying to find a, a good way with which to put those up online and have it fulfilled uh, without involving a very large corporation that um, takes quite a lot of money. So the answer is yes. We have okay. lots and lots of issues. If, if, if anyone's interested, if they just send us an email, um, we can get them a copy. Okay. Okay. That's, that's great. So, um, you, you make these meals, you, you spend a lot of time doing this and you take pride in it. I know my question is how do you have room or where do you put the food when you're going to make these meals? Well, I always have, um, I've got a basic list of provisions that I think you should carry with you. Um, and, uh, so there's a basic provisions, basic, uh, you know, herbs that you carry with you, um, and you know, spices, and maybe you've got some small tins as well, just some for emergency use. And, and you pack that in the bottom of a pannier. Um, we're about lucky as say we have two motorcycles, so we can actually just spread some of our stuff around. Um, and I have one, which I call is my kitchen pannier. It's my smaller pannier. Um, that I, I carry that stuff in. Was it 20? Is that 28 litre 25, one? 25, yeah. Um, and that's where all my camping stuff uh, for, for cooking goes. Um, and then on top of that, there'll be some soft bags of rice or couscous or something like that. Pasta, uh, pasta, pasta, pasta shapes, not spaghetti. Not other way around, dear. Really? Yes. Spaghetti. You need spaghetti because it's, small and narrow and it shoves it perfectly down the side of your pannier perfect size so we have all of that and that's one layer and then on top of that you have your soft stuff and they always leave some space for fresh stuff so that you can purchase on the road should you see anything and you can throw that in the spare top bit Um, and that can be that can be your, your fresh vegetables. Usually root vegetables are very good to carry, not going to get bruised unless you know that you can put in a softer vegetable and you're going to be eating it that evening. Um, if you're 
purchasing meat or something, uh, you can make sure it's wrapped quite well and throw that in the top of your pannier as well. Uh, but again, you don't want to be buying that at the beginning of the day. And Especially in, in, develop, in developing countries. You want to make sure that you buy that and cook it fairly quickly. Uh, you do want to make sure that it's wrapped well so that you don't get whatever blood of the animal is on all of your other kit. Um, do be really careful what meat you're picking up. And the weirdest thing we ever learned at the beginning of the trip was um, we went into this market in, was it Senegal? It was Senegal Senegal and there was literally a brick shed and it just looked like a a horror film. There was body, you know, it was just, it was very bloody, very unpleasant and and not the, not the local butchers that we're all used to. And we asked our friend, okay, well, how do we choose the piece of meat? And he said, Especially when you don't know what it is. He said, yeah, okay, well, you want, we'll go to that guy there. They're very good. And the piece of meat he wants there. Well, the point, the piece of meat he was pointing out was absolutely covered in flies. And we said, well, that, no, that, that can't be the right piece of meat. That's, that's the most sour green meat. And he corrected us. No, actually the, the flies are drawn to the bloodiest, freshest piece of meat. Uh. So the one, the one that you don't think you want, the one that has the most insects or flies on it, um, is the freshest. Having said that, obviously- It can also work the other way. Yeah, I was so, going to say insects. If, if it's covered and there's, there's stuff growing out, then you're not going to buy it anyway. But yeah, typically, um, if it's just got normal normal flies- And quite bloody, then it's very fresh. And if you want to make absolutely sure, just pull it out and uh, Lisa and I carry some white vinegar. Um, you can buy it almost anywhere. You can buy vinegar almost anywhere, believe it or not. Um, it lasts absolutely ages. And we would just make up a solution of water and vinegar and mm-hmm. rinse the meat in that mm-hmm. first. To clean it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is the most interesting tip I think I've heard so far is choose your it's meat bizarre. by looking for the most flies. And maybe that's a title. It's not exactly intuitive, is it? Um, but yes. also uh, <laughs> fish. Fish is, a, fish is a very interesting one. Um, so obviously you try to get your, your fresh fish um a lot of people will try to sell the unknowing westerner uh, a, a day old fish well fish if it's fresh shouldn't smell a fish also when you poke it its skin should um, um bounce, back. bounce back almost immediately shouldn't leave any imprint <clears throat> of your finger and if the eyes are cloudy don't touch yeah, it and if the eyes are cloudy uh-huh. avoid it the eyes should be clear like they're, like you're looking into a, a pebble in a river. That's what the eyes should look like. Because you've been on the road for so many years and you've been camping so much and you've been dealing with packing and unpacking and all that, a lot of the things that you're doing every day while you're doing this is just normal stuff for you. In other words, when you mentioned about the vegetables and you said, you know, you don't get a soft vegetable because unless you're going to eat that night, because it'll be no good. That's just one of those things that you'll automatically decide in your head as you're picking up. No, I can't take yeah. that because I'm not going to keep it for two yeah. days. But if you don't know yeah. better, that's when you put it in your pack and you end up two days later with, oh man, have I got a mess in one of my yeah. bags. You know. Oh, carrying eggs. Yes. Easy to carry eggs. You don't need them in an egg box. Um, and you just need to... And they and outside of Europe, England especially, if there are just eggs that haven't been processed, chemically washed, they do not need to be refrigerated. Yeah, I never refrigerate any of my eggs. Uh, and you just you just wrap them up and... In what? Well, it could be anything, really. It doesn't matter. A pair of socks, who cares? Wrap them up in some socks and put them into a polythene bag and then rest them on top of your... That your water 
bag that we have on the top of our um, carrier bags on the panniers. So it's all nice and soft. So the eggs are carried on their own waterbed. Yes, they I are thought about on their that. own waterbed. On the outside. Uh, no, no, they're, they're in a little, uh, we have a little pannier. Um, lid bag. L- lid bag. It's not inside, it's, it's on top of right, the, the panniers. Right, that's what I mean, yeah. 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 Lisa's and only showing off because she forgot the eggs were there. We did two and a half thousand miles across Australia and then found them unbroken on the other side. <laughs> yeah, and and then if they break, you can still use them because they're in a plastic bag. Ah, so you just, yes. just pour them out. I remember in India you did something that was pretty cool. Um, exactly. We went to a lot of India and it was uh, we, we knew we weren't getting enough protein and a lot of the regions where you were finding food, it was vegetarian and we just needed more, more protein. So Lisa would find eggs and she would hard boil, you know, 10 to 12. And we would eat those over the course of a few days. Just store them just like that? You do that a lot right. in Africa too. Yeah. yeah, I love a hard-boiled egg like that. And in Africa, super easy, snack, healthy, quite hard, a few times. Uh, we'd, we'd hard boil up the eggs, <clears> and we'd wrap them up, um, and then we would have, oh gosh, the very appetizing uh, sardines in a tin because that's really, really what you could find a lot of the time. And it's almost like they were in engine oil. Uh, oh, not, those Russian ones yes. which found in they, they were not plush sardines. I was going to say that has to be tongue sardines. in cheek. So. Yeah, uh, it was like engine oil, thick. Oh, it was greasy. thick, black, greasy. Yeah. It tasted horrible. Um, mm-hmm. And you eat that with your weevil bread. I've got a funny yeah. feeling. We did some research, and it turns out what we were buying was a decade-old yeah. Russian military rations. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, it could be. And so, and you'd, yeah. you'd also have your weevil bread. So you have your bread. It's 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 kind of hard lemon unleavened bread and uh, it's probably been around for a few days as well and it's pretty tough um, but once you soak it in this engine oil it's not bad now normally you want to heat this bread because it's made with flour that's quite old and maybe it's been standing around for a while um, little weevils you get it insect at, at larvae homes, little insect larvae get into the flour well they still use it they're not going to chuck it away uh, but in order to get the weevils out of the bread then you heat it over a, a flame and they crawl out and they drop out that's appetizing well, well we're really filling this dream of camping aren't yeah. we yeah uh, well we didn't obviously have a fire that we could just you know, put by the side of the road and heat our weevil bread. So we'd just eat it. And I told my parents this and my father, typical, typical military man went, oh, I don't know what you're complaining about. It's just extra meat ration. Many people would pay a lot more money for that. So there you go. <laughs> That's how you're bonus. extra meat ration. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you very much. Always great fun to sit and talk with you guys. You know, Likewise, Jim. It's an absolute pleasure getting to chat to you. It's, it's getting us to stop, isn't it? We can carry on and on. <laughs> I think we all could. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thanks fun. for having us Thank on the show, you. Jim. Cheers. was Lisa and Simon Thomas from To Ride the World. Their website is toridetheworld.com. Now we've got photos depicting some of what we've been talking about in this episode in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com.
Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout-out on our Raw show and we would really like it if you would consider becoming a patron supporter just at any amount for it to be there for us for every single month that would be great now i did mention raw just now if you're not aware of that that's the other show that we do it comes out every month on the 21st it's roundtable talks about motorcycle travel it's good fun with a group of people sitting around joking and, and with lots of information very popular show as well you can find that at our website, adventureriderradio.com. But of course, you can find it anywhere you find podcasts. Just go wherever you're finding your podcast and download it there. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. I'm Ted Simon, and here I am on Adventure Rider Radio again and extremely happy to be here with Jim Martin.